Welcome to Mavericks of Marty. I'm Marty Kodish, your host. Today I have with me Reverend Odell Cleveland, Bill Goble, and Deshaun Adams, and we're going to talk about race. You've got two black Democrats and two white Republicans having what most people would think would be a very difficult and awkward conversation. So it's nice to have them in here today to talk about this difficult topic, honestly and openly. We're friends in a way that we can have these sorts of discussions. It's something that not everyone has, and I wish more people did have. Bill and Odell have this cool concept for a podcast called Common Ground. And on that show, they take people with differing ideas and differing opinions And they bring them together to find common ground, to see, you know, how they can agree upon things rather than just disagree. And so Bill and Odell will often describe their podcast as a white Republican and a black Democrat coming together to find common ground. In my own personal life, Deshaun Adams started as a mentee of mine through Dustin's Greenhouse and has become, in some ways, a mentor for me on various issues. And now we're good friends, and we have a chance to have conversations and talk to each other in a way that we really are seeking to understand the other person's opinion. Because oftentimes we don't agree, and that's okay. And we can have these conversations where we don't agree, and yet still seek to understand the other person's perspective, and do that in a respectful way. We have a candid conversation about Black Lives Matter and what it means both in terms of just the statement and the various organizations involved and the movement overall. You know, of course, Black Lives Matter, you know, and I don't feel the need to add any sort of additional stance on that about other lives or anything else. Black lives do matter. And police brutality is bad. No one wants police brutality out there at all. Deshaun has a chance to talk about observations he made during our trip to Africa and what it was like when I was there with him and what it was like with the people in Africa. I know you don't like me to say this, but one thing that's always stuck to me was when there was no live camera in action, when no one was there to you know, dispute your perspective in a blog, what I remember is Marty spending literally hours plowing the land of this community with his own hands and seeing him again through the phase that I saw him as, as a teenager, right? A white, you know, multi-millionaire man humble enough to look at this community of African people and to plow their land with his hands and sweat. Like for me, that signified just the, again, the essence of what I believe Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry is talking about when it comes to serving leadership. We talk about breaking down barriers. This is a huge deal, breaking down these barriers. It's not easy. So make it simple. Pick one person, one person that you can start a relationship with and have conversations. Just somebody that's different than you that's not in the same circle, that gives you a different set of lenses to look through. And be patient when they say things that will set you off. Just settle down and go have a bourbon or a beer or a glass of wine. And if you don't drink, go out and have dinner. 
and break over bread and find that common ground that you can find with people. We talk about how you can most effectively come into a community if you hope to affect change. A lot of times when people come into a community, I don't care if it's um, east side of Greensboro or Africa or Zimbabwe or any, any community, when you come in to help, if we're not careful, we'll come in saying, hey, we can come in and solve your problems. Why don't you do Correct. this? Why don't you do that? And in a way, it's our arrogance of trying to yep. help because I've been guilty of that on numerous occasions versus asking the question, how can we help you? We talk about what it's like to learn from various cultures. If you have the mindset of going in and you're learning from the cultures and you're exposing yourself to new things, you're more likely to be in a dialogue like what we're having now, a reason dialogue discussion. And you don't take it personally. You, you want to learn new things. You want to hear what the other side has to say in a uh, discussion. We talk about what it's like to have relationships with people that truly differ from you in terms of background or political affiliation or race. But I think the reason why I have been able to understand and to really have strong and rich relationships with Marty, as an example, is because we have a real relationship. Right. And so I think the problem is when you lack relationships, you lack awareness. You lack the ability to explore, you know, your own thoughts and opinions and beliefs as me and Marty do over time, right? In all of the conversations we have, you know, we lack, you know, accountability in relationships. So if Marty posts something and I disagree, Marty knows that China's going to be texting or calling me to say, yo, what was that? <laughs> and so, but, but, but we're only able to do that, right? And we'll, and we'll laugh about it. We'll chat about it. Hell, we'll have a beer about it. And as you'll find in most difficult conversations, it's peppered with humor. We have a chance to laugh and joke with each other while we're having these difficult conversations because, you know, you need some comic relief to, uh, to break up your difficult conversation and make it a little bit easier to go down, kind of like honey with your, uh, your medicine. So our show is about, uh, it's called Finding Common Ground with Bill and Odell. It's a uh, black Democrat that grew up in uh, the uh, projects of Charleston, single mom, uh, segregation, and uh, whose great-great-grandparents were slaves. And uh, even has a story about uh, supposing one of his relatives cooked for the Ku Klux Klan. So it's kind of an interesting. And I come from an all-white community in Ohio. There were no black people. And if a black person came through town, they usually stopped them and asked them what they were doing there. And they didn't have business, they escort them out of town. So we talk yep. about our differences are, and then we come together for common ground. And, uh, and we've done, I think, 57 shows now, and we're in 24 countries in every state in the union. Love so, that. How did y'all meet? I'm sure there's lots of stories there. Oh, yeah. You want to tell them how we met? Yeah, Deshaun Odell, how you doing? He's the good-looking black good, guy. Good, you all, Yeah, yeah, but I'm just, I'm just pimping ain't easy, Sean. Pimping ain't easy. Pimping ain't Listen, easy. I know. I'm trying to grow up to be, to be, be more like y'all, man. I, I, the only thing I like is being good-looking. Exactly. Uh, 
Uh, Bill came to me, um, Lucky 32. We had, Bill was on yep. the Boy Scout board, board director's leadership, and he somehow contacted me and said, hey, do you know of someone who we could find who would serve on the Boy Scout board of directors? And I listened for a minute, and I asked him, I said, Bill, what's your agenda? He said, I, I don't have an agenda. I said, okay, I have one. And I just went into the whole thing on I'd rather support you know, the Boy Scouts having a young black male in a Boy Scout uniform for $300 is more beneficial than having a young black male in a orange jumpsuit in the penal system that's costing 30 something thousand dollars a year. So we went from there. Our bill was very um, direct to the point. And I really like dealing with white folks who are straight to the point. Marty, that's why I like dealing with you. Because as a black person, a lot of times when you deal with white people, you know, talking riddles and circles and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, come on, man, let's just talk. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how me and Bill kind of hit it off. And then then the then the, awesome. the wives got together and they liked each other. So we were toast at that point. <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, we're on a plane going that's to Paris. Yeah, you know. Yep. So it is what it is. So Deshaun, what do you know? What do you know about the show? What do you know about Marty's podcast? What did he yeah. tell you? See if he told you the same thing he told us. He basically said, I know Odell and Bill. They I just was on their podcast a couple of weeks ago. I know you, we have conversations like this all the time. I know from y'all's podcast that y'all explore to your points already, explore topics around, you know, race, around, you know, kind of equality or equity. Um, obviously different perspectives, bringing different folks in. I did listen to a couple of, um, of your shows, um, but basically about his podcast, <laughs> he was like, yo, I know a couple people want to get in the room, want to explore more, you know, about, um, how to have difficult conversations and community is what he told me. Is that right, Marty? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's about right in terms of okay. uh, this particular show. And then just overall, you know, I think I've settled on this idea of uh, Kick-Ass Concepts presents Mavericks with Marty. So the idea of Love it. independent thinkers coming on the show and talking about uh, why they think differently than the group, why they don't conform with what everybody tells you to think, but are more open yep. for conversations and discussions. And I think those are the people I'd want to spend time, you know, an hour or two talking in a podcast Versus uh, people that are just, uh, you know, only stuck in their one mindset or feel like they have to uh, comply or be canceled, that they're willing to speak up and uh, and take a different perspective. And also people that can have a reasoned conversation for an hour and not feel attacked or vilified or feel the need to attack personally <laughs> back and forth. And we've obviously had a ton of conversations over the years on a host of topics um, some uh, yep. about wine selection and uh, fun stuff, and some about more difficult topics. So, right. So, That's I was true. telling Bill and Odell how we met, and uh, yep. a little bit about Dustin's greenhouse. You want to give them a uh, uh, your version of the story on that on on how we met? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, as I mentioned before, Marty and I, I think we've probably known each other now somewhere close to. 12 years, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but we met, I want to say back in 2010. Um, I was in high school at the time, actually. Um, and so a little bit about my story and like the program, Dustin's Greenhouse itself, 
was founded um, by Martin and Lou Green, who are entrepreneurs in the Greensboro area. I believe they now moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, but essentially, they would have a program where they uh, believe strongly, um, you know, in recognition of their son, in helping uh, young students develop a broader perspective beyond perhaps what they've seen in their day-to-day -day communities, maybe their families, et cetera. And so for me, um, in the context of my story, you know, I come from, uh, I believe it was Odell's story, you know, coming from a single parent household where my mom actually, you know, was definitely in what, you know, on paper would be a low income, uh, you know, tax bracket. But at the same time, I definitely was born in a house full of love, full of joy, uh, you know, really developed a strong sense of self. Uh, it, it, I use that context to say, even though I did come from, you know, a low income, less privileged background, that was definitely the context of my world in high school. Um, and so I was sort of a student, you know, I'm originally from Greensboro, North Carolina, you know, went through the Gifford County Schools District and had some challenges along the way. I mean, you know, everything from school suspensions for violence or fighting um, to, you know, being in circumstances where, you know, I was even, I remember one time it was just my mouth got me in trouble, right? I've always been trying to like, you know, advocate for myself and advocate for others, but sometimes that was to my detriment. So I remember this one time I was actually suspended from school, came to school during suspension and was suspended again on top of that. So that tells you a little bit about the type of teenager I was at the time. Um, I also, you know, was not at the time thinking about college um, more seriously. You know, obviously it was something that people taught me that, hey, you know, to get a head in life and to create a life for yourself, college is important. But I really hadn't thought, you know, super deeply about it at that time. Um, another thing, you know, I was um, born and raised on the southeast part of Greensboro. So you can imagine Delhi High School, my parents, my mom, my aunt, who also raised me, lived two blocks from uh, Bluefield Elementary. You know, I went to Lincoln and Harrison Middle School and graduated from a middle college um, called GTCC in High Point. And so that's, again, just a little bit of like context of where I was in 2010. Now I you, think the purpose of that. You I'm left out, Deshaun, <laughs> a pretty significant <laughs> part, which is that you yes, uh, founded and started a whole mentoring program along with, yeah. uh, I think, two co-founders and impacted a ton of kids' lives uh, while you were in high yeah, school. Yeah, that was that's true, Marty. That was after my reformation years. I was like, yo, I'm, I'm done. I'm done, you know, uh, trying to do things my way. Definitely want to tap into, um, just more positivity and creating, you know, at that point I felt like I had good grades. I was definitely on trajectory to go to college. Um, but I wanted to kind of create an opportunity for other students who may come from underprivileged or excuse me, from uh, less privileged backgrounds. Um, to have an opportunity to like talk to a mentor. So you're right, Marty. I started a Youth Succeed mentorship program with my best friends, Kendall McDowell, um, and a couple of other folks. And really our mission was to get high school students to spend their time in elementary and middle school uh, classes to just talk to kids about, you know, decision making. And, you know, obviously there was a behavioral aspect to that. We also did some academic work. That program, to your point, Marty, actually was um, highlighted by Maurice Mo Green, who was a superintendent at the time. He used that as a, you know, his State of the Union address as like a best example of what students should do. And obviously, in my case, 
what students could become. And so we use that program as a launch pad into, you know, again, creating opportunities for other students. So that's where I was in 2010 when. And Deshaun, that had like, um, was it like 1,200 kids that had been helped by that? Wow. Yeah, there were hundreds of kids. So we 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 actually created. You know, I didn't know what a what a business model was at the time. Marty definitely helped me develop that over the years. But we developed sort of a, a light business business model, I'll call it, where we targeted um, schools that were either Title One or schools that were, um, you know, not achieving uh, success in the way you know according to North Carolina school standards. So we started and targeted those types of schools. But yeah, Marty, it was hundreds of students who were impacted. And we had about 45 high school volunteers who were part of that program, which for a school of only 150, 200 kids, like that was most of our school were participating in that program. What did they do in your but program? What did they do? The, the high school students or the elementary and middle school ones? Well, let's start with elementary and middle school and then go to high school. Yeah, yeah. So they were... Really, we, we didn't know what we were doing, as I mentioned before, but essentially we started off as doing, you know, math, focusing on math literacy and reading literacy. And so we worked with the, uh, with the each school principal, as well as their curriculum facilitators to develop, um, you know, life strategies around, you know, additional prep work. So we went into their classes. We obviously, you know, helped with things like reading skills or reading competency, we focused on where students were in their like reading um, grade level. And then from the math aspect, we did the exact same thing. We focused on, you know, creating more, um, you know, more support for their, for their math uh, curriculum. But that was, that was the academic component. The sort of interpersonal piece was really around just having like real honest conversations about like decision-making, meaning, you know, we also had students who, you know, our principals would identify as like struggling in school. You know, maybe they had several issues in their home lives. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually one school, I won't name it just for the sake of trying to keep it a little bit anonymous, but there was one school that had a lot of refugees actually in Gifford County schools. And so we worked with a lot of those students to think about like how to transition into the U.S. What does it mean to be a refugee student coming into Gifford County schools? How to work on things like English uh, language learning? Um, so it was really a wide array of topics that we covered. We also had a like worksheet that we asked the high school students to walk through that was really focused on, you know, behavior and like what 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 is good behavior, right? And how do we, you know, become, you know, studious and you know, what are the things what you know, at that point it was a little early for elementary kids, but for middle school students, we focused on like, hey, you haven't thought about college, right? What would that look like? What do you think you would need? Who are the types of people that you would need in your circle? You know, what type of support do you need? So it was really like a light curriculum that we had developed. But I do think the success was both from a student's perspective. We had parents reaching out, telling us that it was a great program for their students and that they were glad that they were enrolled. Um, the school district, again, Maurice Green, the superintendent at the time, he actually used that as one of the um, sort of, uh, barometers through which the service learning component for high school students is now a part of what students have to do to complete graduation. Um, and then for the high school students, which, you know, I was a high school student myself. I mean, honestly, just beyond it feeling good to be able to give back in that way, it really helped us think about like the service or yeah, servant leadership model 
um, right? What does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to, you know, give up your time, your talent? You know, also talk about treasure in some cases. But what does it mean to give up a little bit to really gain leadership skills? And so it helped me uh, develop as a young leader at that time, uh, still a young leader. Um, but really, that was also some of what other students said um, it did for them. So I'll stop there. I know I said a lot. Y'all, like, definitely keep cutting me off. I talk a lot. so the uh so i met deshaun through uh dustin's greenhouse and like he said it was set up originally for um in honor of their son uh, martin and lou green's Mm -hmm. son dustin Mm -hmm. who died tragically but who had been impacted by travel to uh, another country and they saw they felt like that could impact other high school kids lives and give them a broader perspective of the world if they took them uh, on a trip to a third world country. And so for Deshaun and I, that was uh, South Africa in 2010. And Deshaun was one of the 10 students uh, that went over, and I was one of the mentors uh, that went over at that time. And we went to uh, Cape Town, uh, had a chance to meet Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, had a chance to go shark diving, great white shark diving in a cage, that was fun. And throw up. Everybody threw up because oh, of the really? uh, Yeah, it was awful. Definitely. You're, you were chumming. We were chumming the water, you're, yeah. You were chumming. The hardest, you know, right. when you think about going uh, shark diving, what they don't tell you is that cage has gaps in it. So when you're sitting there swimming, you're worried that your hand or your foot is sticking outside the cage could because be big, it could huh? easily go out. Yeah. <laughs> and then they also right. don't tell you getting in and out of the boat into the cage from the top with a rocking boat in the water you have a right. real risk of falling into the water and not getting into the cage. Oh, and then the third problem is you don't have air in there except for, uh, you know, a snorkel. And in a rocky water, the boat's hitting, <laughs> the cage is hitting, water's getting, you know, you're right. taking in salt water. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, Yeah, that's pretty hazardous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Something I enjoy yeah, doing. Yeah, I'm still trying to once. figure out the lesson learned there. What was the lesson learned? I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, how to throw up. I think that was about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how to face your fears. <laughs> right. Be glad you survived. Holy cow. Right. And then we went to um, we went to a shantytown in Cape Town. Uh, we went to uh, Muffin, B.C., and, uh, which is... Um, uh, where Hands at Work Africa is, and then went to a another um, uh, village there and worked with a communal center, put in a well, put in a community garden, and then the kids got to go on to a, another trip to take a safari as well. How many how many kids in total were there, and how many adults? Uh, uh, ten kids, ten well, high school ten kids, and then um, uh, four of four of us for adults: Lou, Martin, me. And, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. And Lynn, Lynn Bergeron. And Lynn, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. The, uh, and it was funded by the, the county or the school system? Funded by Martin. Um, oh, really? Uh, Martin and Lou Green have this set up as a foundation. And uh, they did that. They did fundraisers. We did a couple of fundraisers for them as well. And the, um, the mentors also contribute too. Wow. So this is the first time some of these kids have been out of the country. Or, or some, yeah, some people first time out of the of southeast, them, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, or flying yeah. on a plane, or flying on a plane. Holy moly! Yeah. Wow, yeah. what an experience! How long were you there? Three weeks. Ooh, yeah. So it was a while. This was um, in 2010, and I, I think what it 
what I think it showed everyone was that when we think of poverty, we don't think of that level of poverty. Right. When you're seeing someone that has no running water, no electricity, I think probably the most impactful uh, part of it was there were two women uh, living on their own. So single mothers, the husbands were around or not, wasn't the husbands, the fathers were around, but weren't involved. And they had probably five kids and they were in a shack that I wouldn't store tools in. I mean, it was, it was maybe eight by 10 and you've got six people living in it. No running water, no electricity. Uh, You had another one where a woman was blind and would, and she had no legs and she would drag herself out, gather scraps she could find, weave mats out of them and then sell them to tourists. You you had another one where a a guy was, um, a young guy was living on his own and no parents. He did have electricity, but no running water. Holy and, cow. You know, and that gives you a, a comparative stick when you're thinking about how yeah. bad things can be in your yeah. life. Yeah. And the other thing too, Marty, to that point, you know, one of the things that I found most powerful about the trip, we actually stayed, we, we had a host family, right, that we stayed with people in the village um, for a night or two. And when we, you know, obviously we were there to, you know, just learn more about the community and the people, but you know, for me personally, I think what I most gathered from that was just the resiliency of humanity. Um, and, you know, obviously in my case, you know, I stayed with a host family and just learning more about, you know, me, Marty, Khalil Lloyd, we all stayed in the same house. I'm forgetting his name at the time, Marty. You remember the gentleman's name you stayed with? Um, I don't. I can't. I can't remember, but anyways, it was a gentleman and, you know, he was telling us about his family. He was, you know, basically raised himself. His father died of TB. His mom was eight of HIV um, in, in, in his community. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, obviously to your point, Marty, it was extreme poverty in that case. You know, a lot of us didn't come from, you know, places of, you know, wealth or, you know, ton of privilege or power. Um, but for me, it reminded me of, you know, two lines. As we went on this trip, we were also tasked with, you know, learning a poem by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. And it really just kind of pointed back to the last two lines of that, which was, I'm the master of my faith. I'm the captain of my soul. Um, the reason that was most powerful to me is that, sure, there are lots of circumstances for all of us and for sure all of humanity, right, that dictate you know, the type of life we ultimately, you know, end up with. Um, but knowing and centering on the fact that, like, you know, the resiliency that each of us have, we just have to tap into, um, is where, you know, what I was most reminded of through that experience of, like, hey, what does it mean for me to truly be, you know, not just the master of my faith, but really the captain of my soul? Because that, you know, is definitely, regardless of people's religious backgrounds, in my opinion, that's, that's kind of what centers and grounds us, but I think that's my main takeaway um, from the trip. So they're still doing your program in um, in Guilford County. Um, they're sort, you know, that's a good question. So you've got Lou and Martin Green that started this, and then their daughter Ashley as well, and then they had uh, a couple other members that were kind of key leaders and. 
at one point, uh, Martin and Lou handed that off to uh, Deshaun. Do you remember that guy's name? That uh, Freebird McKinney. Yeah, Freebird. High school teacher at Grimsley yeah. High School. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure the current status of of him working on that. Lou and Martin have moved down to Wilmington now, and um, I think Freebird is is doing some of that. Um, but um, Martin shifted his focus and Lou, they did that for a number of years, but I think a couple of years ago, they shifted more of their focus to traveling to areas like Peru um, or South Africa, and then trying to do more impact on the local residents uh, there as well. What's the name of the foundation or the agency? Dustin's Greenhouse. Hmm. It's interesting. Very much so. So have y'all uh, been to a third world country? Odell and Bill? Uh, not really. You know, we travel, we usually go to Paris or Israel or, you know, I don't know, some may and may not call Jamaica a third world country, but, you know, when you go in there with the cruise ships and everything else, um, it's always interesting when you go to another culture because a lot of times people see you as rich Americans, you know, and uh, to Deshaun's point that, you're not rich, but when you go from America to someplace else, people perceive you as being rich because everyone has all these biased prejudices and stereotypes of America. And it's usually that everybody's rich in America, whether you're white, whether you're black, everyone's rich in America. But to you all story, it brings me to this point. You learn a lot about people when you travel. So I was wondering some of the aha moments that you and Sean had when you all were traveling because, you know, three weeks is a long time to be around someone and you look at things differently and you say things and sometimes unintended consequences are still consequences. So you may look at some poor black folk in Shantytown and say something and you may mean it one way or you may mean it the way one says it. And Sean looked at it, um, it's like, wait a minute, man, I'm, I'm right up the street from Mount Zion, down, in, you know, East Greensboro, I understand. So how did you all deal with those misunderstandings, Marty, when you all were going through looking at poor uh, people of color? How did y'all deal with that? I, you know, I really don't remember anything where we had anything like that. I mean, I think um, over the years, Deshaun and Martin have had a few more misunderstandings, maybe, than, yeah. Than Deshaun and I have, yeah. Um, um, because they're both passionate and um, and they both sometimes will kind of speak um, and get into a little bit of a tiff um, about things, um, a little tit for tat on commentary. Um, and Martin Martin uh, uh, does that. I've learned over the years to kind of temper how I uh, approach things and make sure. I keep things about ideas and concepts instead of letting it get uh, personal on some of these. I think that's one of the key things for just a reason debate, but um, yeah. it's very passionate. Deshaun's very passionate. So I think they're, you know, they're almost like a, you know, a father son out there a little bit on the trip with uh, a little bit of that, uh, you know, oh, yeah. head butting, but uh, I like, I, I like your description, Marty passion. I'm definitely passionate and am willing to have conversations and like go all the way there with anybody right but but back to your, your question odell around like what what if anything was an aha moment on the trip i think you know i've never thought like super uh intently about it but i will say you know one thing that just came to mind for me 
Marty, you remember when we went, right? We all sort of, as a part of like um, going into the village, especially see Tatuka as an example, one of the things we did was create, um, or not create, but we basically offered up, you know, different sort of toiletries and different uh, personal items for the community to use. Um, I was actually very blessed and lucky that Mount Zion Baptist Church, Odell, um, which I know you'll appreciate, was actually helped me carry, I want to say like three military <laughs> duffel bags of like tons of toiletries um, through a campaign that our church had did. And I took those actually over to Africa with me. Um, but one aha moment that I had was I remember there was a gentleman who was coming to uh, the community center there. And we were, you know, obviously we had different, you know, feminine care products and we had toothpaste and toothbrush and all these different things. And there was a moment, I don't even know if you, we've, we've spoken about this, Marty, but the moment where there was a gentleman actually who came up and looked at the toothpaste and like he pulls the cap back, he opens it up and kind of looks at it. He looks at me, he looks at the toothpaste and it's kind of like, what is this used for? <laughs> and... <laughs> what was interesting about that moment, you know, I went on to explain to him, you know, this is toothpaste, you put it on a toothbrush, you know, you like circle around, you know, all the things your mama taught you when you were growing up. Right. And when he kind of, you know, when I went through the story, he kind of looked back at me and was like, well, why don't you just use like a tree? It was, you know, in my work, for the lack of a better term, a tree twig. So he would go pick the uh, branch or tree twig off and use that and chew on it all day. And so he was kind of saying back to me, this is something that, like, I appreciate you bringing over and giving to us, but, like, we're good. And so for me, I think, like, now that I'm a little bit <laughs> farther along the way, I think that was just a moment where, especially when you're designing things for a community or thinking about, like, what's best for a certain part of town, et cetera, really taking into account what do the community say they need, um, I think is an aha moment. So... I know it's like sort of, you know, me weaving the through line there, but uh, I think that was one thing for me as I look back of like, man, we brought toothpaste, which is a great thing, but is that truly what he needed, right? He's like, yo, I'm actually good. Like I can just use my current method. So I do think like looking back on the, to that situation, that's a lesson for me in the work that I do around, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion of how do we design, you know, to the unique needs of a community. You know, tied into that, I, one moment that kind of hit me a couple different times is when I got there, I was like, okay, let's go ahead and get this set up. Let's boost their marketing. Let's, um, you know, I'd offered to put in like a computer room for Hands at Work Africa so that people could post about and kind of share their experience when we were going to uh, plow a certain or um, cut down a certain area. I was like, let's get oh, yeah. know, weed eaters and this. And they, um, first of all, the rental prices were just, crazy they wanted like a if it was a thousand dollar weed eater they wanted a thousand dollar deposit holy cow but um and i was like fine okay i'll do that and we'll do it but they said hands at work said no we don't want the computer lab we don't want the weed eater because something's going to happen and it's going to need to be fixed right and so right. they were very focused rightly so at the time i didn't understand it but now i do uh, on sustainability yeah. So they didn't want to put something in place that was going to break a year later and then they didn't have people there to fix it or it was going to be an ongoing cost. For them, rather than buying a weed whacker, they'd rather pay two guys $10 to go out and, you know, cut the grass. 
And then, you know, they're doing it with their machetes and they're sharpening that and, and there's no issues. And something's not going to get stolen or misplaced. It's a thousand dollars. So, um, I, that, uh, that, uh, in the last revamp of Daryl's that kind of reinforced it for me because, you know, I can put yep. things in, but then it's, how is it, um, yep. sustained and how is it maintained exactly. over time? Well, you know, I've got, I've got a story for you. Um, you asked if we've been to third world countries, I've probably been to about 10. Uh, I've been to Cuba on a missions trip and, uh, that, that was interesting. I was in communist Poland to adopt a girl and that was another interesting thing. Uh, and then, uh, obviously I was been in South Africa in Malawi and a time, uh, Kenya and, uh, Uganda. And so I've been to a number of them, but the one that really stuck out, I was, I was in charge of skincare at Unilever and one of my brands was Vaseline petroleum jelly. And the biggest use of that product is in black Africa. Uh, the, uh, they use it as a skin coating. And, uh, I got a call one time from United Nations saying, we want, want to come, have you come to New York. We, we want to talk to you about a humanitarian program. And I said, okay. So we went up and they said, we have uh, we have a pill that uh, one of the greatest causes of infant uh, death mortality is diarrhea. Uh, and they're getting it from this water that's contaminated. And we have a pill that if they put the, in the water, it kills the particular bacteria that causes the problem. And, if we give it away, they don't take it because there's no value in it. They don't see any value. But if we could attach it to your Vaseline product, which is the number one selling item in black Africa as a gift with purchase, they'll see the value and they'll, they'll take it. So we did, I think we did uh 18 million of those uh, to put in. And one of my jobs was to go out into the country and uh, we had a promotion one time uh, for Vaseline uh, that they did in Malawi. And uh, it was, and I've still got the poster. I should bring it in here. Uh, the grand prize was an ox. And the second prize was a plow. And the third prize were some picks. And uh, became the most popular, successful program in Malawi. And so the guy who won the ox was way out in the bush. And we couldn't transport it out there. And uh, so one of, the, one of the fellows said, well, let's put him in a helicopter We'll drug them up, carry them in a sling, and carry them out to the pasture and put them down. So, you know, we all went out there with our photos and getting ready, and we get the, this this ox out there, and the whole tribe's out. And the guy wouldn't accept it. And we said, what's the problem? Well, it was drugged up. It was kind of, you know, whacked out. It was wobbly. And he's, it's, it's sick. I'm not putting it with my herd. It'll make my herd sick. And then I won't have a herd. So we tried to explain to him what we did <laughs> and it's kind of like your toothpaste. No, I don't get that. Yep. I don't get that. You know? So we said, okay, yep. would you wait till tomorrow? And if he's okay, will you accept them? And he says, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a day. So he had the witch doctor come out and do some stuff. It was crazy. We had to give the witch doctor a hundred dollars. for this. <laughs> wow. Put, put that on a travel and expense report in a big corporation. <laughs> right. But, but you exactly. know, to, to everyone's point, a lot of times when people come into a community. I don't care if it's um, east side of Greensboro or Africa or Zimbabwe or any any community. When you come in to help, if we're not careful, we'll come in saying, hey, we can come in and solve your problems. Why don't you do Correct. this? Why don't you do that? And in a way, it's our arrogance of trying to yep. help because I've been guilty of that on numerous occasions versus 
asking the question, how can we help you? Because a lot of times it's like we are coming in to save you. And I remember when I uh, started this nonprofit called Welfare Reform Liaison Project, one of the things that we worked so hard on is putting brand new donated uh, garments in a warehouse display area and allowing the families to come and pick and select for themselves, giving them that dignity because they knew what they wanted for their children and themselves versus saying, hey, here it is. You say you need a coat. Hey, take this and you should be happy that you get it no matter what. You know, and I think sometimes if we're not careful, not always, but sometimes if we're not careful, it becomes we know best for you. You have nothing. You should be thankful for whatever we give you. And we miss the mark sometimes because people want their um they want their pride to a certain degree and yeah. they want their dignity. And sometimes we take that away from them. Mm. Yeah. I, I love the word you use around arrogance. It's definitely what I, what I think we kind of go in with sometimes. I, I mean, obviously, you know, in political conversations in today's world, I think all of us probably need to kind of continue to check our own arrogance, our own experiences, and then think about, you know, how do we even just like, at a baseline, communicate with the person that's right in front of me, but despite right my personal beliefs, my political party, et cetera. Um, but I do want to kind of link that to uh, another thing that I want to point back to that Marty mentioned around, um, you know, how we were plowing the community and going through, you know, helping them essentially clear the land before we started the garden and before we kind of did that. It reminded me of, um, you know, a quote, when I went to Morehouse College, so I went to Morehouse, Marty, we have a story in that for sure, um, of me getting in and essentially going to Morehouse. But when I went to Morehouse, I essentially worked with a guy named Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph uh, Echoes Lowry. Who wow. Is, if, you have, if you don't know who he is. Wow, he's an icon, man. Yeah, he's an icon. He, he recently passed away over the last two years, but I spent a lot of time in his house working with his organization here in Atlanta. Um, but essentially, the, the long story short on him is he helped shape the 19, I want to say 68 Civil Rights Act, um, the Voting Rights Act. And so he's very instrumental in that. But my point is, he had a saying that he would say to us as change agents, which is what we would call as student advocates. He said, you know, a servant leader is somebody who's been, you know, blessed or, you know, fortunate enough to get a unique set of skills. But the challenge is to make sure that they are humble enough to reach people where they are, but yet you have to have some sort of job, right? So driven enough to support them to where they need to be. And so I think that's one thing, one reason me and Marty are constantly connected because I do see, you know, him as a, a servant leader. But the story I want to point to is Marty talked about, you know, how we were thinking about what was best for the community in terms of plowing the land and we went through the materials. But I'll tell you one thing, me, and Khalil Lloyd, um, one of my good brothers from the trip, one of the things we always kept with us about Marty as an example is here we have, and I know he's really humble, he's going to hate that I'm saying this, but we have a man who is literally the CEO and founder in a lot of cases of multi-million dollar businesses. And Whoa, multi-million him. dollar businesses. Marty owes me $20. So he said he ain't got it. So, so, so you telling me Marty can pay me the $20 he owed me? Okay, okay. Wait, wait, a, minute, wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute. We know who's buying lunch today. Exactly. <laughs> lunch on Marty. Yeah, that's hilarious. Definitely. Uh, so Marty, I know, you, I know you don't like me to say this, but one thing that's always stuck to me was 
when there was no live camera in action, when no one was there to, you know, dispute your perspective in a blog, what I remember is Mari spending literally hours plowing the land of this community with his own hands. And seeing him, again, through the phase that I saw him as, as a teenager, right? A white, you know, multi-millionaire man, humble enough to look at this community of African people and to plow their land with his hands and sweat. Like for me, that signified just the, again, the essence of what I believe Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry is talking about when it comes to servant leadership. And so I, I'm saying that not to brag on Marty. I mean, you're, you're not that good looking, Marty. <laughs> but but to really say, man, what, what would the world look like when we do have leaders who are, again, humble, which is in juxtaposition to that arrogance you were speaking about, Odell? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting because that's the Marty that I saw. That's the piece that I had an opportunity to look behind the curtain and see that Marty. And that's the Marty I have really admired and, you know, but you're going to get the first, you're going to get the RRR Marty first because Marty is Marty. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we love that. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting when you look at this show that he's doing, when you say independent thinkers and mavericks, you know, when you become an independent thinker and a maverick and all of a sudden you didn't go with, okay, here's a rich white guy. So I know what he's about and when you don't go along with the herd and you don't think that way and you look at usually it's three things, race, religion, and politics on how one process that. And a lot of times, and I can speak as a black male, an older black male is 60, hopefully 62, 62 years old very soon, is that I came up in a culture where if you were black, you had to be a Democrat. Or if you were black, you had to hate white people. If you uh, have to be a Baptist or, you know, those type of things. And I kind of bucked all that. I look at a person as a person. You know, we always want to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we want to be judged by not the color of one skin, but the content of one character. But a lot of times you could look at a Marty and you're like, I like what I see. You know, when I evaluate what it is, or you could look at a bill, my uh, companion, and it's like, I like what I see. You know, they're good people. And people ask me, and I don't know, Sean, they ask you, Odell, why do you hang around with white people? Or why do you have a white best friend? <laughs> yeah. or, or why do you, you know, how do you handle that as an independent thinker? Because people look at you and like, listen, you, Uncle Tom, you're trying to be white, all that craziness. When you're like, white is not right, right is right. And a lot of times, uh, whether you're black, white, and, you know, we're going to throw the green and yellow in there for political correctness. Right. <laughs> it's like I deal with folks. I rock with folks who rock yep. with me. So how do you yep. how do you square with your black friends and other friends that you and what I mean, you and Marty are boys? Yep. Uh, that's a fantastic question. And I'll tell you to sum it up. Uh, well, let me back up. You got to think that I, I understand the sentiment of like black folks. <laughs> around, you know, like, why are you like, you know, for lack of a better term again, you know, socializing and, and putting your nose where the white folks' nose is, you know, like, wh- wh- why are y'all in communities together? What is, what's, what's behind that? And so for me, I think about just the historical context, right? There were good reasons why black and white people did not, you know, especially for us as black people, why we did not trust relationships with white people based on the context of history, right? You could, you know, be a business owner and be black 
and let's just say for our case in the South, and have relationships with people like Marty or like a government official, you know, and your business, you know, was still at risk of being shut down or at the, you know, expense of whatever the white man wanted to get to have for you or, you know what I mean? And so it had real consequences for our families um, based on the historical context. And so I'm saying that to say I understand a little bit why there is this, you know, distrust in our community. But I think the reason why I have been able to understand and to really have strong and rich relationships with Marty as an example is because we have a real relationship. Right. And so I think the problem is when you lack relationships, you lack awareness, you lack the ability to explore, you know, your own thoughts and opinions and beliefs as me and Marty do over time, right, in all of the conversations we have, you know, we lack, you know, accountability in relationships. So if Marty posts something and I disagree, Marty knows that China's going to be texting or calling me to say, yo, what was that? <laughs> and so, but, but but we're only able to do that, right? And we'll, and we'll laugh about it, we'll chat about it, and we'll have a beer about it eventually. But I think the reason why we're able to do that is because we have genuine relationships. And so my point, Odell, is, the reason I think I'm able to do that is because, you know, I've been able to cultivate relationships, but I'll be honest. I mean, I definitely had the, the same thoughts of like, man, what, what would this look like? How, why would I, you know, have a relationship or even call, you know, have coffee or, you know, whatever with, with people, you know, with white people and with somebody like Marty, but even, you know, so I say that to say like, that's how I think I'm able to cultivate it. I also come to the from the perspective of, you know, I mean, look, I went to Morehouse College and HBCU um, in Atlanta, was able to, you know, go through uh, the English department, actually. So studying the written language and just the historical context and all of the ways, right, all these concepts and belief systems is what I explore through my degree. Um, and those things, like, I, I stand definitely firmly on Black power as an example. And I don't mean that statement. I mean that I have um, a real acknowledgement that I'm very proud to be a black man and I don't see it as um, you know a barrier. Now I do see it as a barrier in you know a lot of different cases obviously I'm not like on my own lone island right. What I'm not saying is I can like pull myself up from my own bootstrap and what I'm also not saying is I don't understand you know context around you know race and the wealth gap and all that. I get it. But what I do think is because of, you know, being able to cultivate relationships with people who don't look like me, there's a level of trust and a level of honesty that I think we're able to have where I feel people who usually come to us and say, like, why are you doing that? You know, I always constantly check them and say, well, do you have friend groups that are, you know, diverse that don't with people that don't look like you, that don't have the same money in the bank account as you? And so for me personally, I'm like very fortunate to say I have a combination of friends that are, that span a lot of different races, a lot of different, um, you know, socioeconomic status, et cetera. Um, and I'm not saying I'm like, you know, I got a white friend. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because I make a point to be open and curious enough to explore what makes us different. I actually am continuing to find what makes us honestly um, the, the, the same 
from the perspective of, you know, we're humans and collectively we all have like a purpose that we're trying to accomplish in life. Now, I know I said a lot in there. I know that I can definitely be debated on a lot of my points, but I think that's how, Dale, to, to sum it up. Yeah, and I think, and as I we kicked the mic to Marty and Bill, I think it's from a perspective of the peer pressure that your peers, whether you're frat or whether, you know, you know, Morehouse is a very powerful prestigious institution. So congratulations on even getting in and even more congrats on even getting out with a degree. Cause like I tell oh, my people you. all the time, it's easy to get in college, but it's hard to get out with that degree. Oh, yeah. So if we have the peer pressure, it's almost like what does black people say about white folks when white folks ain't around, but also what does white folks say about black folks when black folks ain't around? Cause I'm sure Marty right. had some people saying something to him, you know, a bill says something, People saying, hey, well, you hang out with that black guy for all the time. So, Marty, Bill, jump in and help us out here. Well, you know, I've been listening and, and a couple things jump out at me. You know, the servant leadership part of it uh, reflects on my background in scouting because that's what we teach Eagle Scouts to become servant leaders. And, uh, and that's part of their charge when they become Eagle Scouts. It's, you know, once they get to that level, they're not done. They're just getting started. Now they've got to go out in the community and, and serve as a leader, and uh, but serve as a servant leader as opposed to just a leader. And the other thing that jumped out at me in your conversation was understanding the differences of uh, people's lenses and cultures. You know, one of the things when you travel, you get to see things that, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. If you, if you go to China, uh, and I was there, and we were taught, when you go there, if, if like I went to see Mao Zedong's tomb, and our group wasn't scheduled to do that. Uh, so I went to uh, the tour people, and this was way, way before. I think it was in 82, right after it was open. So they didn't even have a lot of cars. They didn't have hotels. They had bicycles. It was really primitive. And, uh, and so I asked our tour folks if we could do that, and they said that's going to be very difficult. Uh well, in the United States, in my culture, that means, okay, it's hard, but you're going to do it, okay? You're going to figure a way to do it. Well, it's dishonorable to say no. So they were telling me no. That's the way they say no. So if I didn't understand that, I would have kept pressuring the fella for it. And instead, when he said it was very difficult, I understood that meant no, and I wasn't going to push him any further. About About three days into the trip, I get a tap on the shoulder, and him and another communist member uh, said, uh, Bill, we're going to take you to see Chairman Mao. So we went, and uh, his, his, uh, he was in a glass casket. Most of communists do news. They cook you in a glass casket. So uh, he, it's, and it's behind the Forbidden City. It's not in the front part. So we went there, and there must have been, I don't know, 10,000 people in line. Wow. And uh, they took us right up to the front. I'm feeling uncomfortable about that. Here comes an American. And uh, and the Chinese tend to be very chatty, and they're very loud. And they're, but when we walked in that mausoleum, there was dead silence. And they allow you, to, you know, they had guards and stuff, and they walk you through. And um, and there he was. He was propped up in his glass casket, looked just like he does in his pictures. Now you say propped up, like sitting in the chair propped up, Bill? Uh, no, he was eating sushi. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Don't start that, man. You know, we, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, he was he was in his casket, and they had the casket at an angle so you could see. Gotcha. You, could see, you didn't have to look into a casket. Uh, 
but you know, things like that. I remember another time we were, when you we were in Croatia, Yugoslavia at the time, it was communist and we went to an open market and, uh, we were, maybe it was Poland. I can't remember one of those two countries when it was communist, but there were apples and fruits and vegetables. So we wanted to get some for our trip. So we went up to the, the cart and we started picking the ones we wanted. And the guy came and slapped our hands and took the fruit out. And the people we were with that lived there, he says, no, no, you don't touch the fruit in the communist country. You, you, you tell him how many you want. And you, if you want 10 apples, two of them will be rotten because he has to get rid of the stuff. So eight of them would be good. So when you, if you want 10, you got to say 12 and, and it was part of the culture. Okay. Is that's the way. So I think the beauty of traveling and the beauty of communicating like you and, uh, uh, folks that you've come up against and met, uh, and Marty and all that is we start changing our lenses on our, our ability to communicate. And Marty made a point earlier and I don't know if we were taping it, but uh, he was talking about uh, when there's confrontation and how he approaches it. He doesn't approach it personal. He talks about the things, okay? And in that way, it takes, the person doesn't get feeling they're being attacked and they have to start attacking back. Uh, and, and that's a learned trait. I mean, I don't think he started that way. No, and I, I don't do it all the time. I slip up as well. <laughs> But I, I do, I agree with you. I think um, travel is, people that travel tend to be exposed to a lot of different things. They have to be comfortable in countries where they don't speak the language. They have to learn new customs like the apple picking. Um, and you you learn new ideas, you're exposed to things and you don't come in. I think the, you know, there's still this ugly American attitude where people come in and say, well, why don't you speak English or you know, or, you know, someone's speaking a different language and so they speak louder or they expect things. And I, I think if you, if you have the mindset of going in and you're learning from the cultures and you're exposing yourself to new things, you're, you're more likely to be in a dialogue like what we're having now, a reason dialogue discussion. And you don't take it personally. You, you want to learn new things. You want to hear what the other side has to say in a uh, discussion because that's how you learn and grow. I think the biggest problem, and this is one of the things I'd, I'd love for us to delve into, and we've hit around it a lot today, but today you've got an environment, I think, brought on even more so by social media, where we have these bubbles, and you're stuck in a bu bubble, and it goes back to this ancestral need for um, you're in a group, and that offers you some level of protection. So you, you, you conform to the group, you dress like the group, you, you know, you think like the group so that you're safer in numbers. And I think we're getting back, back to some of that. And people feel really feel a need to conform with a bubble or a small group around them. And if you don't, it's almost like they want to throw you out of the group. So you're then this, um, you're excluded from the group because you're, you're, you're called a name for being an independent thinker and you're kind of shoved out of that, but then you don't really fit in another group out there because it's, you know, it's a different way of thinking too. And so um, there was a, there was a book out there where they were talking about this idea of travelers and, and you're traveling between different camps or places and you're exposed. And 
it's what explorers would do back in the day. And I think that's kind of my feeling of a maverick mindset or an explorer mindset of you're not just tethered to one mindset or community. You're wanting to explore others. And I think that's why I feel very comfortable, you know, with Deshaun as my, I used to call him my mentee. Now he's probably going to become my mentor as I lose my <laughs> faculties over time. But, but uh, he, exposed me, he always exposes me <laughs> to lots of new thoughts and ways of thinking. And actually, uh, Deshaun had mentioned Mo Green. His son, Isaiah Green, was on the Board of Governors with me for a year as a student government association. He's the one that introduced me to Clubhouse. And, uh, and that, you know, there's just... I think people that want to learn more about other ideas, other concepts, other cultures do that. And people that don't kind of stay in there. But I, I think there's a lot of pressure right now to stay in your group for fear of being labeled as an outsider. And, you know, I, I find that all the time where, you know, I, I'll do something that pisses off Democrats out there. And then I do something that pisses off Republicans on the other side. And I'm kind of in the middle. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to conform with, a hundred percent of what someone thinks over here, a hundred percent of what somebody else thinks. I'm more independent thinking. And that's kind of this, this concept of uh, Mavericks with Marty is the, that uh, independent thinkers. I love the name. I love it. I think it's fantastic. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you're right, Marty, the, the, I, I was doing, uh, being a Republican, I was a uh, poll watcher uh, for the last election. And, uh, and I picked, I wanted to be at A&T. I figured, man, I'm going, I'm going to go. I'm Republican. I'm going to go. Well, I get in there and uh, there's two black ladies. There's a whole bunch of blacks. I was think I was the only white uh, until the Democrat came in and it was a white guy. And he was a German professor at uh, Guilford College. Uh, and we started talking and, and got to know each other. And well, it turns out two of the ladies that worked there that were running it uh, were scouters. They recognized her for skinny. Hey, Bill, what are you doing here? And I had a I had a, a mail-in ballot on me that I had to put in because I was just going to be out of town. So I gave it to her, and she walked me through the process and the procedure, and, which I was kind of curious of because everybody said the mail-in ballots were bogus. And uh, <laughs> I can't wait to comment. Go ahead, Bill. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> That's hilarious. Go ahead. So, so, uh, so I'm sitting there, and you know we had a break, and so I asked the 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 Democrat. I said, Hey, let's go outside. You know, they have the statue of the four kids that went to this civil rights museum or to Woolworths and sat down. Let's just take our picture. So we took our picture and then we took a couple other pictures and uh, I posted them on Facebook. And I said, I had a great time doing this. She took all, showed all the pictures. I said, everything looked good. I even met a couple nice Democrats. Yeah. And holy cow, it blew up. Well, well. Go ahead, Bill. I, I have to comment, but I want to make sure you finish first. <laughs> so well, I'll give one more thing and then you go. <laughs> so uh, these people are really coming. You, you know what it's like, Marty, in social media. They get they start at you. And, and so I always ask them, I say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's go. And one guy goes, no, I won't have coffee. I'll have dinner with you. I said, okay. He says, and I want steak. And I said, you pick the place I'll, I'll buy. And he said, I want to go to Fleming's. I said, you got it. And uh, he never showed. And uh, so Odell, your turn. Bill, they said, listen, you a poll watcher. Here you are, 70-something-year-old, white, 
male Republican. You're supposed to go over to A&T and watch those black folk to make sure they ain't cheating. Because you know, you came in that mail-in voter, the damn president that told everybody, hey, they're cheating, and you were supposed to go over there and catch them cheating, and you going over there making friends with the enemy. Well, you, you know, it's 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 crazy. And let me tell you what even exactly. Let me tell you what even is a little bit more uh, bizarre. You have Senator Raphael Warnock. I uh, heard him preach. You know, he's an Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah, I in worked Atlanta. in his church. Yes, we were there together. Right, yeah. heard him preach even before. And of course, he's a Morehouse man. So now I think, and Deshaun, help me, but is Herschel Walker? running against him or is that not the case down in Atlanta? And if that's the case, then what a paradox for the good people in Atlanta since Herschel lives in Dallas, Texas, I believe, and he's coming back to run in Atlanta or run for the state of Georgia. And to Marty's point, you know, social media gives everybody so much courage behind that keyboard to say this and do that and just, just say stuff that I guess they would never say face to face because what I do know, Marty, it's hard to hate up close. You know, you could say anything and do anything and you could be a social media hero or all that kind of good stuff. So, Sean, is is the whole Warnock uh, Walker situation in Atlanta or am I, since I don't live there, am I missing the mark? Sir? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's uh, they, They're running for uh, U.S. Tennessee, so it is statewide, but you're right, Herschel Walker. Um, I believe Ralph Raphael Warnock is from Savannah, Georgia. But yeah, they're they're two uh Georgia candidates. But yes, definitely true. It's um it does present um an option obviously in this case to vote for two black people. Um either Warnock who's a Democrat or Herschel Walker who's a uh who's a Republican. And it is, you know, obviously a lot of debate around, you know, what does progress look like? Who you know, if, if not race, be you know, being the challenge, what then is going to make, you know, the next step for the state? So, yeah, it's definitely a toss-up right now. You know, speaking of Georgia, it's one of the uh, big bones I have to pick with um, former President Trump. I feel like he went down oh, to God. Georgia and just created such a mess with this yep. uh, uh, election fraud concept. Um, first of all... Um, you know, it's just, I think he kept Republicans from showing up to vote because he went down and told everybody, your vote doesn't count. It's all rigged. And I feel like he kind of wanted to take his ball and go home. And if he couldn't win, he didn't want the Senate in Republican hands. It it felt intentionally disingenuous the way he was approaching that or wanted to say he really deserved the presidency. And what he did on... um uh, when he was giving the speech on January 6th, um, when he called out Mike Pence and asked him to effectively break the law, um, I tweeted right after that, before the Capitol was stormed and said, this guy's a nut job and he needs to be stopped. I mean, this is, you can't, he's destroying the Republican party. You can't have a party of one there where he is just attacking everybody else. So I think he's brought in this concept of uh, voter fraud out there, and which the other side of that coin is people may not show up to vote if they don't have confidence in the system. So I don't think he's really helping with that concept. And then secondly, asking um, elected officials to break the law because he wants to stay in power. That's one step away from a coup. 
Um, and my comments on that have gotten me, you know, criticism from fellow Republicans. But, you know, you can't be silent on these things. You have to be willing to speak out. Now, at the same time, I'm sitting here going, okay, do I want Joe Biden or former President Trump on some of these decisions? Yeah, yeah. I'm a little conflicted about that. Uh, I wish I had a third option yeah. out there. And that's part of we need better people to run. I've told Deshaun one day he's going he's gonna to have to run. Vote for Deshaun. Vote for Deshaun. Okay. Yeah, Deshaun, you got see. my vote. You got my vote. We just won't go I back and look it. at your, your juvenile record, that's all. Actually, I'm surprised, exactly. Odell, that you – have you run before for office? No, no, I never ran for office before. I am a political analyst. People pay me for my political strategy. I fundraise for individuals. But I've been asked to run for U.S. Congress. I've been asked to run for a bunch of other things, but I've never ran for office. And Bill, I think you have ran. Uh, I was office, going to. Right? I was going to. I was going to run for Congress and then uh, even mayor. And then uh, I, I thought more of it. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, I've got a lot on my plate. And my wife actually was the one that we were sitting in the yard having a glass of wine. And she says, let's 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 just go through a few things here. She says, first off, I'm going to support you, whatever you do. But I need to, to uh, as wives can do, point out a few things. And she says, okay, you just signed up for four more years pretty high level with scouting. You started another business. You got your current business. You've got a nonprofit. You're going, it sounds like Marty Cotis, doesn't it? Yes. I like, and, uh, and she says, and where are you going to find time to either be a mayor or a congressperson? What are you going to give up? And, uh, you know, she put some, some common sense in that, that, uh, I sat back and said, I come from a political family. My grandfather was in politics for 27 years. I worked on the house for a congressman, lived with him. So I've got it in my blood. There's no doubt about it. So maybe sometime in the future she may run and that maybe I can enjoy it through that avenue. And uh, well, I, think I think all three of y'all should run and I'll help in your campaigns <laughs> yeah. because well, you would all well, do really if, well. Well, Marty, what if all three of us think you should run? So then what are you to say about that? Yeah. Well, when the uh, emperor of uh, North Carolina opens up, I'll, I'll run for that position. <laughs> So long as I have to make decisions with a lot of other people. Right. The Board of Governors, there were right. a lot of 31 to 1 votes. And, yeah. Um, well, Marty, you know, I, my, my impression of Marty is an independent thinker, which I love. And as I get to know Marty more and more, uh, you know, the, the relationship gets richer. But it, one thing that definitely I understand about Marty, um, it's not that he doesn't play nice with others. He just likes his own sandbox. And he, he doesn't want somebody messing in it because he knows what he's doing and he's been successful at it. So why, why change the formula? I think I'm, I'm not afraid to speak up on certain issues. I'm not afraid to challenge others. And I think sometimes, you know, that can hurt other people's feelings and it, um, and I'm not afraid to hurt other people's feelings when I'm, when I'm discussing something just because, you know, you can't just be so polite that you never talk about things. There was a quote, um, Tom Fetzer that served on the board of governors with me had a, I want to say it was a Thatcher quote that it was concept of it was, uh, when you reach an agreement, you've basically watered everything down to where, you know, you're, you're not sticking to your principles. And I, I don't think that that's exactly true, but I do think a spirited debate that then results in a final, uh, decision is better than not covering all the issues because you can leave things out. And so, 
know, I think you come to a better decision when you have that spirited debate out I there. Agree. And that's agree. one of the reasons I don't surround myself with yes people. Now, at the end of the day, I'm going to make the call, but I want their feedback along the way. You know, you think about it. This podcast reminds me of John McCain, Senator John McCain, where he stood on the Senate floor and Mitch McConnell said, okay, then President Trump wants to over, not overturn the Obamacare bill. Everything was in place. Um, and I guess McCain may have said, the original Maverick said, no, I'm not going to vote. And I guess McConnell, who is brilliant, not that I agree with everything, but when it comes to a politician, you know, Mitch McConnell is one of the best out there. He says, okay, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in my face. And John McCain, suffering from the illness he was dealing with, stood up walked there and turned it thumbs down. Now, I know that that unraveled a lot of things, especially what the former president was trying to do because I think he had an ought against uh, President uh, Obama. But that's a maverick. That's a maverick. But John McCain was always like that, though. He was always like that. He believed in what he believed in, and whatever hits he took, that's fine. But, you know, that's the true sign of a maverick. And when he went thumbs down, it's like, wow, how much easier, Marty, how much easier, Bill, how much easier to sound, how much easier, Odell, it would have been if he would have just said, let me just go along with the pack. Let me just go along to get along. But, Marty, what did you think when you saw that with John McCain? Well, we're not going to find common ground on, on Obamacare, I don't think. I got you. I, I got you. And that's the good thing about the show. <laughs> but but um, um, for a lot of, lot of reasons out there. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a business guy, and uh, you look at how things are handled. I think the whole healthcare system needs significant reform Amen. out there. I mean, there's it's so many levels, and I was – the one positive thing I'll say about Obamacare, because this, you know, this uh, – you want to say something nice about something, even if you hate the rest of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> is um, there was an effort in there to get rid of all the paperwork. You know, you think about when you go to the doctor, how many times do you have to fill out these damn forms all right. the time? And so there was an effort to make the systems talk to each other more. And that's significant. Um, telecare is another one that um, coming out of COVID recently, I think is a great uh, solution as well. But I would like to see technology used to impact uh, healthcare more um, rather than just kind of, uh, okay, we're going to open up uh, the floodgates and, and then flood the system. You've also got to start having some strategic decisions about what do you really do and the cost for certain things. And is that serving people the most? So those are kind of where I come at in preexisting conditions. So I, mm-hmm. I come at Obamacare dislike from a few things in there. Um, but I'm all for reform of the system. Gotcha. But I, I do, um, you know, what I've seen is independent thinkers in the Republican party over the last couple of years have just been beat down by president Trump. I mean, he has, he's a bully that's won every fight. I mean, he's, he's cowled his opponents because, uh, they're, um, because the crowd loves uh, the Roman Coliseum. They love that kind of a fight, reality TV, et cetera. 
And he's catchy. I mean, he's like, uh, he's like a, and he's been on WWE. He's using that WWE or, or the apprentice mindset to say, you know, Hey, you're fired or, or, you know, do a SmackDown here, uh, meet the people's elbow, you know, type deal. And so, you know, that, that, that's what I don't like about what he's done. Now, people will say he's rallied a lot of voters out there. I'm, I'm not a fan of that whole approach of the system. I do like more of the um, cutting through the DC speak where people are speaking more of their mind, uh-huh. but I don't like all the hyperbole and rhetoric out there where there it's, it's more trash talking. Well, you mentioned the bully a lot of times um, bullies don't have to always fight. Just when the bully shows up and stick his hands out and says, give me your lunch money. Then you give them their lunch money. I think President Putin can take on some of those attributes when he went into Ukraine. And all of a sudden it's like, we're coming in and we're going to take your country. And the good people of Ukraine said, no, you're not. He said, well, but don't you understand? If you don't, I'm going to beat you down and I'm going to kill you. Well, let's have it. So sometimes standing up to the bully makes all the difference in the world. And when you look at Congressman Adams, Adam Kingsley, sir, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. I've always liked him and others in the Republican Party because what people don't understand, and Sean, you could help me here because you're the other black guy on the call. A lot of times black Democrats are some of the most conservative people you've ever met. You know, we're That's very right. conservative. We're very conservative. And people are like, oh, my God. But at the same time, um, I voted and supported Republicans who have a lot of the same mindsets that I have. But unlike um, many people, when it gets down to the bully coming up and saying, give me your lunch money, you know, I can't give you my lunch money because I'm hungry. And it's a, a movie you probably, I don't know, you might have looked at it called Fridays before. Sean, you've seen Fridays before, right? Definitely seen Friday. Or exactly. else my black card would be gone. Exactly. <laughs> and we don't want your black card to be gone. But hey, by the way, Marty yeah, has yeah, yeah. Marty has a black card and Bill has a black card too. So we've seen the movie right. Friday and Friday has this big bully who just he just he's a bully over everybody. And the last scene of the movie, the kid who was so afraid of the bully stood up to the bully and fought. And he got beat, but in the end he beat the bully. Sometimes. And I think that's the thing with Russia right now. You have to stand up to the bully because the bully don't stop. He'll take my lunch money today and he'll wait a while. Then he'll take your lunch money, Marty. He'll wait around. He'll take your lunch money, Bill. And then when he tried to take Sean's lunch money, that's when the fight starts. And the bully don't want to fight. I think that's the one time these days that I find myself going a little bit more personal is if I see someone out there and they are acting the bully then I feel that it's appropriate to call them out and hit back just because, especially if they do it to somebody that I, I know or care about, it bothers me more than, um, than maybe even if they do it to me, you know, they do it to me. I might turn the cheek a few times, but they do it to somebody else. I think I get a little bit more riled up right away. Yeah. You know, what gets under my skin is the, uh, they call you a rhino. And you know a what bill a, a rhino Republican okay. in name only wow and 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 that's just mm. not right and that's that's just being a bully and I and I I want to reverse that you know remember the Rat Pack that was you know Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin I mean they were popular if they showed up mm-hmm. in Vegas they sold out Vegas well I want to start a Rat Pack <laughs> uh, for Republican parties Republicans against Trump 
wow. the rats. Wow, come on, Bill. You know you're gonna get kicked out of the you're gonna get kicked That's out funny. of the, the white Republican club, and then you have to come over here with the conservative Democrats. Well, you, you got to come hang I out with the black folks. You just said I got a black card, so I don't. Okay. Know <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you see um, real um, strong Republican leaders like um, Mark Walker running for Senate, Amen. who. You know, I think what I really appreciate about him is he embraces his faith. He's unafraid. And that's a whole other battle out there is this attack on people having any sort of faith out there. It's like if you're not an atheist, you're um, you're considered crazy uh, by some groups out there. Um, and uh, I appreciate that he embraces uh, his faith. Um, I appreciate that he's a uh, he's a moral person out there. I agree with a lot of the things and his thinking. I don't agree with 100% of it, but I agree with a lot of it out there. Um, and But he's just, his character is um, more solid uh, in my mind. And I also, you know, I met Mark because I was supporting Phil Berger Jr. in his run for Congress. And, um, and the Burgers, by the way, I, I love... You know, there are people out there that don't love them. Um, I, like I think them. they're they're great principled people as well. And people will disagree on issues out there and topics. And again, you know, you're never going to agree with a politician 100% on items. Um, you will agree with them on certain things and maybe disagree on others, uh, unless it's yourself running. Uh, and so um, when uh, Phil Jr. was running, Mark Walker approached me and said, if you... Um, um, you know, if I make it through the primary, would you support me? And I said, yes, I'll support support you if you make it through the primary. And I thought at that time there was like no chance at all that he would make it through the primary <laughs> because Phil was super strong. Um, but when he did, and it was a big shock, um, you know, I, I kind of got over the shock after a couple of weeks and he called me and I agreed to uh, support him. And that's why I think right now uh, people may be underestimating him in his run for Senate because you can't count him out in his ground game. He reaches a lot of people. He doesn't have the war chest. He doesn't have, you know, big money funding him. He doesn't have the name brand out there that Governor McCrory has. But um, he knows how to work a ground game and people care about him. And I think that's, you know, going back to something you said earlier, Odell, when you've got people out there from differing groups why do you do that? Because I think you feel that someone genuinely cares about you. They're not just, you know, you don't make close friends with someone you think is using you or that they're not genuine. And so I think, you know, he connects with a lot of people and they, they feel like he really cares about them. And he cares about a lot of different communities out there too. Uh, he's been very active in the HBCUs and um, has held, um, has done a lot to support HBCUs in the state. Oh, definitely. definitely. Yeah. One, 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 one thing to just posit into the conversation too. I know y'all have, in the last couple of minutes, especially as we talked about, you know, the political landscape, I've been, you know, mostly, you know, observing, listening to you all, but I think I'm going to say aloud, right. What is going through my mind as a person who is a millennial, right. That also is probably, you know, let's just say I don't think any of y'all are under the age of 40. <laughs> I am. Uh, and we'll say, like, as a millennial, right, I think part of where I am currently struggling 
especially in this political landscape, is a lot of what you, you know, the concept of even the podcast, like the whole independent thinker, maverick, et cetera, as a person who has, you know, again, friends um, navigating both Democratic and Republican, uh, you know, issues. I've been, you know, in uh, a lot of roles even up until this point as a consultant at, you know, a firm called North Highland. I've worked at Deloitte. You know, I've been in several different sectors as a professional, uh, you know, on the healthcare side, working for one of the largest um, states uh, on their, you know, uh, Medicaid programs and thinking about expansion and thinking about peeling that back. And, you know, even now in my current role at, at uh, one of the largest technology companies in the world, you know, I'm at Google and we are grappling with how do we navigate as a society and as a business these different, um, you know, really complex landscape around policy. And what, what I'm trying to articulate is I find myself as trying to be an independent thinker, as trying to think about what are the, you know, values that, you know, mean the most to me and how do we collectively create this, this world that we're all trying to achieve. I think what I'm saying is I am definitely, and I think a lot of my friends are struggling with where is our voice represented in the current political landscape, right? When we hear, you know, obviously the conflict that has happened over the last couple of years with President Trump, you know, obviously things that have happened on January 6th and, you know, you know, Obama, you know, we've lived with him now and we've seen, you know, obviously the pros and cons and challenges that he dealt with, um, certainly the ones that President Biden deals with and even the ones that, you know, President Donald Trump dealt with. And so I guess, y'all, what I'm trying to say is, what how do we navigate right i kind of see you all as you know being around the block a few times and certainly y'all have perspective around you know what you personally believe and think around um you know democrat party or republican party i guess my question to you all is how do we get to a place where people like the ones y'all just mentioned senator or you know representative walker and others where they can hear the voice of the generation that's coming up behind them to really say, hey, how do we mature as America? And I think that's what I've seen, you know, personally, this just utter immaturity in our democracy. You know, you look at the rhetoric around Donald Trump and his supporters. You look at the people, you know, in some cases, the rhetoric around people who are Obama or nothing else, right? And I'm like, isn't, isn't it much more complex than that? Yes. And how do we build a society that not is just reflective in terms of race and demographic and all that, but build a society where we can get closer to our truest values as America? And I'm not saying we need to build a utopia. That won't exist. But how do we edge more towards a more mature democracy? And I think I don't know where that's happening in a lot of these public debates and conversations. And so as an independent thinker, my, my mindset is, what role do I play, right? I'm in the business setting. You know, I've been a consultant. I've been in large companies. You know, I've worked at UPS as an example. Um, you know, so I've, I've been in a lot of different spaces. And I'm just like, where, where, what, what, what will we, what will we mature to become is my question to you all. Do y'all, you know, you know I the think conversations Sean, y'all are having. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got some real opportunity in Georgia right now. I think that, you know, again, 
not to sit here and just tell you to vote Republican, but um, I do oh, I think, <laughs> well, I think you might ought to consider it only because, you know, the Republican Party is welcoming a lot of different viewpoints. And to the oh, extent you can have vote exclusively Republican yeah. Party, I'm with you. I believe yeah. any, every, all of us. And I think, think if, you, if you see people coming into the party that you think are more moderate or might represent different values, I think it is a chance to mold the party from within. I think the Republican Party needs some change and it needs some more diverse voices in leadership positions to affect that change. But I, you know, I think there's some opportunities out there um, for that to happen. And again, I wouldn't say, you know, vote a, a straight party ticket, but, um, you know, look at, look at the, uh, the different candidates individually out there. And I think that's what's going to, you know, if we start evaluating candidates, both D's and R's um, and saying, okay, what's the person's character like, you know, what are they, you know, and how will they uh, work within that organization? Um, I think there's some opportunity out there. So, And Deshaun, this is Odell, the good looking black guy, of course. Um, (laughs) My premise, what I would say to you as a millennial leader or a leader who happens to be a millennial is from the premise that the Democratic Party takes the black vote for granted and the Republican Party ignores the black vote. Therefore, the black vote is caught between a political rock and a hard place. Now, understanding that, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, let me call these candidates to a forum that I, meaning you, organize for millennials and let them know these are our concerns and get their responses for those concerns. I think that's the best place to start because one thing a good politician will do, he or she will come and listen to you. And if you never talk to them, they don't know. But at the same time, letting people know that you are open for understanding because you're not questioning them like they're on the witness stand. You're questioning them for a better understanding. And that's how I, as a lifelong Democrat who's proud of it, is the fact that that's how I got a better understanding of um, how this person thinks. Because just because someone is a black Democrat or a white Republican or a white uh, Democrat or black Republican, that doesn't matter. You want to know what, how they're thinking, will they represent what you want done? And understanding that is not going to be all or nothing. Case in point, then I'll be quiet. When Mark Walker was a candidate to run for Congress, I endorsed him and the newspapers, the media went crazy. I cannot believe Odell, someone in a very powerful influential position like you, you are a lifelong black Democrat and you invoke, um, you endorse a white Republican Baptist preacher. What's the common ground there? Well, a lot of times what me and Mark talked about is HBCUs. Why will HBCUs only get Pell Grant? In those days, we call it Pell Grant at the beginning of the semesters. Mark, how can we go in there and change it so now you could even get Pell Grant around summer school? Why is the whole thing on Pell Grant funding it has to be keep voted on. And Mark took it and helped push it along with Congresswoman Alma Adams so that it could be permanent funding, all those type of things. And a lot of folks who graduated from HBCUs don't even know, don't even know all that happened. But at the same time, when you look at, um, oh, what's the gentleman's name? He's in the White House administration now, but he used to be over the, 
um, Black Congressional Caucus. Oh, man, what's his name? Is a brother from Louisiana Tech or something like that. But him and Mark worked together to get a whole lot of things on the Second Chance Act passed. So, yes, if you look at Mark's voting record, say Mark's a Republican congressman, it's a lot of things on there I don't agree with. However, I got enough things that I agree with to make the relationship more than a transactional relationship. And I think that's kind of how you look at it because if it's not a zero-sum game. It's not all or nothing. You want to say, okay, this is important to us. HBCU permanent funding, that's important yep. to us because I used to have the young guys up and down the hall where I work, about your age, they would want to argue about is it North Carolina A&T versus Central University? And I would tell them, no, 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 stop. As the elder statesman or the old guy on the hall, whatever they choose to call me, I'm like, guys, yep. I don't need you arguing over A&T and Central. I need you both understanding that legislation that affects HBCUs affects everybody. Cedric Richmond. Cedric Richmond yep. is the gentleman who was over the yep. Congressional Black Caucus and Mark was also over the man. study, uh, also a Morehouse man. Ain't nothing like the Morehouse man. And, you know, Mark was over the uh, very large, I forgot the name of the committee in Congress. So you have to understand how committees work, how politics work. Yep. So if you have Cedric Richmond, who's over the Congressional Black Caucus, and you have uh, Congressman Mark Walker, who's over the study commission, conservative study commission, and they're working together to get enough votes because if you don't have enough votes, you can't pass legislation. To get enough votes so HBCU could be funded year-round or get enough votes because this and that, because that the truth of the matter, if some people had their way, it wouldn't be HBCUs. You and I both know that. And HBCUs cannot survive just on the alumni uh, supporting it because the alumni don't give enough back. I don't know about Morehouse, but others don't give enough back to support it. So I think that's part of yep. it. So to yep. your question, you f- organize, you get a lot yep. of millenniums together, and then you invite uh, the senators, the congressmen, or the local individuals who are running. You, you come here and you are the moderator. You're the moderator to say, we have some questions and we need some answers from your perspective. And it's not a ambush. Don't ambush people. Just bring them in and say, hey, how do you feel about this? Or how do you feel about that? And make sure that it's done and it's ran by millennials. And you are the man for the job to be the moderator. But if you're going to be the moderator, you have to be a fair and honest broker. You yep. have to be fair and you have to be honest. So that's the advice that the old good-looking black guy will give to you. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, Bill, Bill, Bill's got some bad advice. Well, yeah. There's, you know that that you know as you were talking about how the millennials um, impact our political um, landscape. I think it's a great question, quite frankly, uh, because you know. You know, you, you wonder, okay, how do we do this? It's it's a huge, you know, 435 members in the House and then 100 in the Senate. I mean, how do you communicate with them? How do you get your views across? And I think if uh, I'm one of not reinventing the wheel, if I don't have to, if somebody's done a good job, I'd like to start with that and then maybe improve on it. So I got invited uh, bef- just before COVID to go to D.C. with APAC, and it stands for American Israeli uh, it's not political action, it's policy action. And I didn't know what it was about. And if you if you have a chance to go to one of their conferences, I would go. Because what they do 
is they have a three or four day session with breakout sessions on various topics related to Israel um, and the, the American relationship. And, um, and they, they teach their people how to um, communicate to government officials, not only national, but on local level as well. And uh, so they're doing education. And then, then at the end of the day, they all get together and they have a committee from local, like we have here is Ron Milstein and Victoria Milstein and the Jewish Federation. And they go and visit their congressional leaders. They break out, you know, like we, I went and saw Mark Walker and, and Ted, Ted Budd, and some people went and saw the senators and they lobby for three simple things, three simple things, keep the budget the way it's at. And the budget's made up of uh, support for the iron dome, uh, for humanitarian aid, uh, for technology. And there's just three, three buckets and they don't go in a lot of detail, but they show up and then 12 to 13 people. I remember we went to Mark's office and I don't know if you've been, been at congressman offices, they go up, they get a little bigger office. He, he was in medium size. Ted Budd was still yep. in the small size. And uh, so we, we met in his office and uh, you know, there were three or four people that were allowed to talk that were chosen to talk, I should say. And, uh, and they had one topic they were supposed to talk about. And I, I was able to talk about the iron dome with Mark and I was probably the only Gentile there. In fact, uh, I think uh, Rabbi Gutman was a little shocked that I was lobbying for the, the Jews. And, uh, but my point of telling you that real long story is if you get a chance, see what they do, go on one of the trips and yep. uh, you'll see, okay, you know what you did with the kids here locally I think you have the ability to do it for the millennials. Good point. I really do. Yeah. Great point. I, yeah, appreciate, definitely appreciate the perspective. And I, I want to tell y'all, definitely, I, I was asking that question sort of tongue-in-cheek um, to say that, you know, again, a lot of what I'm hearing from the seat that I sit in is just like this distrust in the government overall and a lot of folks grappling with sort of, you know, what, what place do I truly have? And, and I appreciate the points that y'all brought up. Yeah, I definitely think I could do a little bit more, but I also would say I have a, a lot of friends who are on a lot of different news campaigns. You know, I'm thinking about like Black Lives, uh, not Black Lives Matter, sorry, don't start the debate there, Marty. <laughs> um, black, we'll go down a bunny black trail on that one. Matter. Yep, yep. Black Voters Matter, uh, the Defend Freedom Fund, lots of different organizations full of young uh, civil rights activists. And, and I, I do, to your point, Bill, like I look to people like, I mean, I'm thinking about John Lewis who I did, you know, was really fortunate enough to go to his office right there in D.C. And to just think about his perspective, right? He started out as a, as a teenager and young adult and the change that he made, right? And now we look at him, you know, on, on this side of his life, um, thinking and reflecting about just the impact he was able to make as a teenager. So I'm not saying, you know, I relinqu relinquish my power and what I can do, but I, what I am saying is it's just, uh, you know, what we, what I believe we're fighting for is, yes, our democracy, but also a better future for all of us. And so I personally am one of those people like, man, how do I play within the seat that I sit in and be effective in my space and in my lane? And how do I build coalitions of people who are doing this work well um, with people like my friends and, you know, the Black Voters Matter or Defense Fund, et cetera? So I appreciate the perspective, y'all. And I'm, I'm saying, man, it's it, Sometimes in my mind, that gets lost in a lot of um, the debate and the rhetoric.
Hey, Deshaun, guess what, man? As a black man from the okay. projects, you know, in South Carolina, um, during the break, I went into use the restroom, right? So I, you know, rushing in there real fast and the, the bathroom's closed. It's dark. So I open the door and I see all these, uh, the toilets, man, like a, like a cockpit, you know, lights and stuff on the what? toilet. Yeah. I, I the, exactly. <laughs> and I'm sitting there saying, okay, now I never had a toilet with lights, camera and actions on it. So what's going on here? So I look at, it and it's called two, two washlet. Just, just for the black folk out there listening to the podcast, T O T O one word, Washlet, W-A-S-H-L-I-T. And I'm like, okay, now, you know, I don't understand. So what I did is what I always did. I lift up the seat and I pee. So that's what I do. You know, I lift up the seat and I pee. You know, coming from South Carolina, we had outhouses. The outhouses didn't have all this fancy, snancy stuff. So we're going to ask our bougie friend, Marty, what's that all about? Yeah, but, you know, and and sometimes I use that as an example, as a misunderstanding or not really knowing. A lot of times white folks looked at Black Lives Matter that I'm proud of as a 61-year-old black male and say, what was that all about, Odell? I didn't understand Black Lives Matter. Just like Odell didn't understand the Toto toilet seat, but I'm going to ask Marty to explain the toilet seat to me and where in the world he get that idea. And then we're going to ask Marty, Bill, and whomever else, because we want to answer the questions for Marty listeners on the podcast. What were Black Lives Matters all about? Because a lot of white folks looked at Black Lives Matter in such a way, and then we got Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matters, and a lot of times the narrative got taken away. So, Marty, What's you doing with these bougie toilet seats? What's that all about? Well, wait, before he does that, before we start keep talking on toilets, I, I have a toilet seat thing out because I went before you. Okay. So I, I, I was I was shocked as well. Oh, wait a minute now, Bill. You're a white guy, so you saw the tutu boo-boo toilet seat. Yeah, let me tell you, thing, that, was, right? that was fancy smancy. You know, I'm the oldest of eight. Okay. Ten people that lived in our house. It was 1,200 square feet. We had one bathroom. So six boys. So, so you didn't get long in the bathroom. There was a tree outside. <laughs> if it was wet, that's where you went. <laughs> now so we the, didn't, we didn't call it the toilet. <laughs> there you go. That was the tree. So the total washlet idea came from a trip that I took with my wife and son to uh, uh, Japan. And in Japan, all the toilets are like that. Yep. And the idea is they use less toilet paper that way. They're very uh, frugal with that. And it's, it's better for the environment. And so um, it has not only a heated seat, but it's got two different sprayers on there, depending upon where you want to spray <laughs> when you're sitting down. So it's like a combo toilet bidet. Okay. So when, when That's uh, funny. Is, what's really funny is when COVID was hitting and everybody was worried about running out of toilet paper, I'm like, nah, we're good. We're going to cover rocks. So, Marty, how is it pronounced? I said tutu, T-O-T-O, wash lit. But, you know, I'm a Geechee from South Carolina. I call it Toto. Toto. Like, like, Toto. The, uh, okay. like the dog. Like we're not in Kansas anymore. Okay, so yeah. Toto. Washlet. Washlet. Okay. Yeah. And then there's hey, a Martin, bodet. Say that again, Deshaun. No, I was just going to say, by definition, that is literally a kick-ass concept. Uh, exactly, yeah. There you go. <laughs> you got it. You hit so it. So it's got the heated seat. I think the heated seat is everybody's favorite part. You know, it makes you want to, you're like, ooh, this is really nice. <laughs> and then it's got the uh, the uh, uh, water spray that's warm water spray. 
And then it's got a dryer as well. And the other part of it is it's got an air filter in there. So it's filtering the air, too. Listen, I got a question. Where do you get one of those? Because Odell's birthday's coming up. You can get them at Home Depot. I want to get them one for you. Know can what? you get them at a Home Depot? Yeah. So oh, my gosh. What size? Do they come in sizes? Yeah. That is so funny. Different, you know, different shapes on there and sizes. So. What size you think we need, Odell? Uh, the size for the big, black, good-looking black guy. Man, they throw me out the hood, Deshaun. If I go back there talking about my white, talking about white folk and all the hanging around oh, white folk, my, my white friend gave exactly. My white folks gave me a toilet seat that blow dries and <laughs> and heats up and wash my butt. Oh, man, come on, I lose my black card if I go that route. Man. Man. Just tell them you're doing uh, Eddie Murphy from Coming to America. There you go. Yeah. There you go. About the royal. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Don't you have a private bathroom in your office? I ain't got nothing. I got private nothing, man. I'm going to leave this alone because, Sean, I'm going to get in trouble. Sean, help Damn us funny. from a millennial, millennial perspective on what Black Lives Matters was all about. Because just like that toilet seat, I was afraid to push buttons, so I just lifted the thing up and peed, man. I did what I know to do. And a lot of times to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And to a lot of white folks and older black people and others, black lives mattered, look like something that we've seen before, but we've never seen it before. From a millennial's perspective, help us in the audience understand what it was. And then we'll talk about it, debate it, because I'm sure we all don't agree. But the great thing about this show that I love about being independent thinkers and a maverick, we get to voice our difference of opinions. Well, first and foremost, wow, that's heavy <laughs> already. Like we're about to dive into real conversation, a lot of heavy conversation, but before I give in, I mean, honestly, I want to give a disclaimer that I I don't represent any organization. Like, I, I have my own thoughts about what it is to your question, Odell. Um, but can kind of start with the, the fact of what the organization is. So I will say it started out as an organization founded, I want to say in 2013, which was, you know, really a response to the uh, verdict in the Trayvon Martin case, right? So, you know, obviously... You know, I believe George Zimmerman, not even believe, I know for a fact, George Zimmerman was acquitted. And so what that signified, I think, to Black people was, man, how is it possible that we've gone from such, you know, you know, from civil rights movement to at that point in 2013, but yet the same system, you know, potentially perpetuates this trope of, you know, what does true justice and true equity mean for the Black community? So I think as a response to that, you know, it was founded um, in St. Louis by a group of women, the organization, I would say, um, in 2013 in response, which was really, you know, meant to think about and ask questions um, to, to the community in St. Louis about, you know, what does uh, police reform potentially look like? What does the, you know, what circumstances essentially led to um, that acquittal? Now, fast forwarding now, as we look at, you know, the incident with George Floyd, um, where we had an officer, you know, with his knee on George Floyd's neck and sort of the response there. The reason I'm trying to, you know, explicitly state those two things is because Black Lives Matter as an organization was founded in 2013 in response to Trayvon uh, Martin's murder, which is what I think now has been sort of dovetailed into this name, everything's Black Lives Matter. And everything on the paper, everything that you see 
you know, related to, you know, black voting rights or related to uh, inject systemic injustice, like all of it together, I think people now call it all Black Lives Matter. And I do think that's an important distinction to make because, um, you know, in 2000 and 2020, right, when the George Floyd incident happened, yes, that particular organization was definitely a part of the conversation, but it was really a lot of organizations, a lot of different people, a lot of, uh, you know, activists coming together to say, as a statement, Black Lives Matter. And so I think a lot of times, to be honest, um, both white and black folks don't really understand that distinction. Um, I think in terms of what happened as a result of George Floyd, I mean, man, that was by true definition, the largest um, movement that happened you know, regardless of your political affiliations and beliefs and, you know, feelings that you have towards it, it was definitely the largest movement since the civil rights era. I think, you know, personally, one thing that's difficult for people to uh, digest is what are they actually trying to accomplish as a group and, you know, as a movement, I would say, forget about the group, really as a movement, what are we trying to accomplish? And I think that's where there's a lot of different debate around, well, what is it? Why do we see, you know, black people destroying communities? Why is there, you know, a response for Blue Lives Matter afterwards? Why are we, you know, indicting all officers? I think that's really people's lack of being able to grapple with, hey, there's a lot of different issues that are wrapped up into this statement, Black Lives Matter. So we, I think we definitely in this conversation need to be back, or excuse me, unpack what are those different things. But I think that's what it is. And, and I think that's a good uh, point. Yeah, please. Yeah, because yeah, one of the things that I've always been against the whole idea of defunding the police, I think that's one of the most yep. ridiculous ideas that I've ever heard. But again, that's just one guy's opinion. I look at it like yep. this, and I'm so interested to get Marty's and Bill's perspective, but I look at it like this. When yep. I was young, we used to play this game called South Carolina called uh, Red Light, Green Light. And it was one of those little games that, you know, you had a person being it, and you had to turn around, stop, and go, or freeze. Then later on, I got to the point where I started getting my permit. In South Carolina in the early 70s, you could get a permit at 16. So we started driving, and it was something called a stoplight. White people call it traffic lights. And it had a red mean stop, a green mean go, and a yellow mean wait. So I understood those rules. And then later on, me and Bill was traveling to Paris, France, and it's something called the Arc de Triomphe. And it's really what we call a roundabout. I think it's like 12 to 18 different entrants and exits at the same time uh, in a different language. So you didn't understand it. And it was no stoplights. It wasn't a green light, a yellow light, or a red light. So all these people coming on at one time. And I think that's where race relations and the whole thing with Black Lives Matters and so many other things are in that roundabout. And you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do because you can't go in there and freeze because someone's honking at you, blowing at you. If you say the wrong thing, you're stepping on uh, eggshells, someone's there. So there's so much going on there. So we come from our different places and we don't understand it. And usually we attack what we don't understand. So I would love to get my good friend, Marty Bill. Who's going to jump in there, my friend? I'll jump in. I won't use the uh, Kid Rock quote from the uh, We the People song, but, you know, of course, Black Lives Matter, you know, and I don't feel the need to add any sort of additional stance on that about other lives or anything else. Black lives do matter. And police brutality is bad. No one wants police brutality out there at all. Um, 
so if those I'm a practical guy, if those are the problems, if the if the issue is um, police discrimination or brutality, let's address that kind of head on. I think the problem is it starts to get confusing when you throw a lot of other things in there and you throw in solutions that aren't really solutions. So when you say, when you start vilifying all police, you know, that's the same thing. That's just lumping people into one big category. Vilify the police that are uh, committing the crimes and the brutality, but don't take a police officer who is a good person and, and, uh, full disclosure, my cousin uh, is a um, campus police officer over at Duke. I have another cousin uh, that was a um, um, drug enforcement uh, person over in High Point. And, you know, they go out there every day and risk their lives to make sure everybody else is safe. And I know they're good people. And and I generally have the ha- glass half full uh, approach on this. So I I believe that most police out there are trying to do a great job. It is a very, I mean, I don't think any of us here would want to go out, put ourselves at risk of being shot every day, and no one wants to go out and wake up and go write a traffic ticket or, or you know, or go into a situation where you, you might not come home that day. And so I feel like it was in the same way that, you know, Trump's attack on the um, election integrity in Georgia was counterproductive. I feel like some of the efforts were very counterproductive. The riots, I believe, were counterproductive. The defund the police, I believe, is counterproductive. Because let's say, let's play this out. Let's say you defund the police, you vilify police, you call them all sorts of names, you make it a job that no one wants. Well, then no one wants that job. And who's going to take that job? You know, a bad police officer, probably not a good police officer. Good point. So my point. feeling is you got the carrot and the stick out there. Okay. Use the stick only on the bad police, not all police and provide a carrot to try and attract better quality. Now, when I served on the UNC system board of governors, we instituted education benefits, significant education benefits for police officers. We increased campus funding uh, for police. That's good. That's good. All because we want to get the best police out there because we want the best experience when our students or faculty or staff Mm -hmm. or people on the campus community are interacting with our officers. We want the best that you can have. We want the most educated. We want them to be trained. So we've got down, uh, we've got national training for them. We do state level training and now we have additional educational benefit so then we can recruit the best officers and keep our students, faculty, and staff safe rather than say, let's cut the funding or make them feel bad. Or, or, or if you take away qualified immunity, for instance, you won't have anybody wanting to serve. Then you're like New Jack City. I mean, this, you know, people are going to be Marty, what you know about New Jack? Marty, what you know about New Jack City? You know, I, I would like to take a, a black card test sometime because I think between music and movies and Deshaun and Isaiah keeping me um, on fleek, which is no longer a word, but which I know is no longer a word. Yeah. And, uh, and drip and all that. I mean, I'm. Well, let me ask you, Marty. And and Deshaun can testify to that as a side funny note, because we're dealing with serious topic, of course. 
But uh, when I got on Clubhouse, I got exposed to a lot of different viewpoints. <laughs> oh my! But God, I think I made Deshaun. Right <laughs> I made Deshaun spit out his drink one time when he saw me on Clubhouse. Deshaun, you want to tell the story? <laughs> Marty, y'all listen. Marty is on Clubhouse, which, by the way, I already think is embarrassing. I'm like, what is Marty doing on Clubhouse? What? I mean, you got time for this? Well, Isaiah, Marty. Isaiah brought me on there. Isaiah Green. <laughs> Yeah, Marty's in a in a um I believe that we were in in, in clubhouse they have a room, right? So you go into a room and that's the club you're in. So Marty's in a club. I don't even remember the topic, Marty, of that particular room, but there was a lot of uh let's just say young black girls on the call and Marty's is like so white dude with his icon that's like just dripping middle aged white man. The and room so people was like, called- yo, was called something in baddies or baddies. Something in baddies, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I sent so Deshaun is- a, a screenshot of that, <laughs> and he about laughed himself silly. <laughs> so the word we use is to, to, to choose someone. We say to be chose, right? So Marty's in the room being chose, meaning people are like, yo, okay, I see you, uh, Big Daddy Marty. Who are you? Where are you from? So <laughs> me and Marty, Marty have a Big Daddy, oh, Big wait a minute. Daddy We're Marty. Here. Big Daddy Marty. I think it's... <laughs> I think that may be the podcast name. Now, 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 that is not Ashley approved. And so, Marty, you'll have to deal with that. Okay, that's only second to my uh, my prowess in the uh, in the plow fields when we were over in Africa. And well, I, give you- I had a lot of admirers over there too. I was like, hey, he can work like eight right. hours. I was. You were the man. Okay, we got to look at Marty's black card. Okay, my bad. So, Marty, you're right. I, I stand to be correct. You're like, wait a minute now, Odell. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. But back to Black Lives Matters, Marty, to the perspective of how it was understood and misunderstood, but at the same time, your other reflections or opinions or thoughts on that before we kick it off to my partner in crime, Bill. I, I think it it, you know, Overall, there were a lot of good things that came out of it. And I just, you know, I'm one of these perfectionists and I'm always looking for, okay, what's, how can we improve something? So when I do that, you know, it's like, okay, what, what can we fix out of that? I would say if you, if you took out the riots and you took out the defund the police, there would have been a much broader collaborative support for the issue. And so I think, you know, now I think we're in that space where that's the next approach is just moving in that direction, you know, have more inclusive conversations, talk about real needs and, and priorities. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think the conversation's ongoing. It's something you have to, to talk about out there, obviously. And um, it's something we still need to work on, but we've got to have realistic solutions. We, we can't have, you know, um, at Chapel Hill, for instance, when we get a proposal, sometimes the proposal is just so pie in the sky that it's not mm-hmm. realistic. And I think sometimes if you overshoot and you ask for pie in the sky, then nothing really happens. And so I, I'm more of a, what are the next three things that we can do? So I'd, I'd kind of throw it back on you and Deshaun in terms of, you know, what are three things that would really address Black Lives Matter? I got it, and I'm going to get to that. But, Deshaun, before we kick it to my partner, Bill, Big Daddy Marty 
with the Barry right. White voice. You know what I mean? The radio voice of Barry right. White. You know, so that's why he had all the black right. women in the in the room right. like like Big Daddy Marty. Bill. Dripping oil, right? With the oil, exactly. So big big daddy Bill. I'm enjoying this conversation. <laughs> this has been fun. You know what? Let me start out with uh we took a break and we got back. Marty goes, uh, would you like some bourbon? And I said, yeah. So we are now drinking bourbon. So you're going to see probably a different tone to this conversation. But, uh, you know, let me give you my my take on Black Life Matters. I had never heard of it before. Uh, I'm taking, this is a 72-year-old white guy mm-hmm. perspective. So I'm up in Taylorsville, North Carolina, ATVing with my cousins from Ohio. And my other, and their sons were down in Charlotte. One's an F-18 fighter pilot and uh, retired and uh, just recently and asked it to go back in black ops for, uh, <clears throat> to uh, go to Ukraine. And, uh, but anyhow, my two cousins come down from Ohio. They got Trump stickers all over their tr- trucks, wearing Trump hats, Trump shirts. And in Taylorsville, that's pretty popular. Uh, so I, I'm thinking, okay, now the, I know the one F-18 guy is, he's pretty cool. And the other guys, even he's he's more conser- uh, more liberal, and I'm kind of in the middle. So I'm in the middle trying to figure out. Okay, well, let's let's get this going. So I just thought, what do you think of Black Life Matters? Oh no, you didn't, Bill. You it didn't was, throw that red meat out there, it did was, you? It, 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 this is after a few bourbons, too. <laughs> oh, so you can imagine. So I'm 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 listening to this, and I'm going, okay, where do I take an on ramp to try and talk to these guys and bring them back to some? some uh, reality, but, and I'm going to get back to that, but I want to tell you my perspective. I never heard of it until Floyd. And then it was all over the place and it got hijacked. It got hijacked by Fox news and all those people. And you know, it's socialist, it's communist. You know where the money's going. If you follow the website, it does. I mean, just some unbelievable stuff. Um, but I'll tell you what it did for me. It, um, my lenses started to change when I saw the video of Floyd being murdered. Then when they started talking about the other murders and shootings, and then you had the one with the two Atlanta guys that finally got put away. Right. Uh, and all of a sudden it, it started occurring to me that we're actually killing black people in this country and whether it's a, a cop or not, we're killing black people for whatever reason. And so it, it, it affected me from that standpoint that if black life matters is a vehicle to make everyone aware of that and to put a stop to it, I'm all in, but it's been hijacked like critical race theory was critical race theory was the same way. They hijacked it and they made it bad. If you look at critical race theory, all it is is history lesson. It's a history. And if you change the name, you know, it's like when someone says, I was in a class one time and they said, uh, white privilege. And, uh, the, uh, the fellows, a couple of the fellows in there got their back up over that terminology. <clears throat> if we change the terminology to, I have a white advantage. I have an advantage because of where I grew up. I have an advantage because of maybe my family's economic background, uh, or, political background. So I have an advantage. So take away, you know, privilege to advantage and people get it. So we, um, I think that all these things are really important to bring to the surface, but they get hijacked. And then 
Uh, people that don't dig in but make it an emotional issue, like my cousins, they will not listen to any common sense. Uh, there is nothing me bringing them over except that maybe if uh, Jesus came back and told them that was wrong. That was about the only thing that, that would change them. Uh, and so, you know, I can, I can, I can do a couple things in that. And, and Marty, it's kind of like what you were talking earlier. I can, I can get in their face and we can, we can no longer talk. Right. Or I can listen to them and then kind of probe and probe and probe and, and maybe break down. But here's the cool thing. It didn't go on to the next generation. Their kids did not pick that up. And it's interesting. The one guy that was there, my cousin, his dad was unbelievably anti-Semitic. I mean, if you brought up a Jewish name or brought, he just went off the rails. And, uh, but his sons never picked that up. So it is stoppable. Uh, but we're, we've inherited uh, a, a black life matters and a critical race theory that's been hijacked. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the big things is this concept of generalizations where people are viewing all police the same, all black folks the same, all Jewish folks the same, you know, and, and kind of labeling. And it's, you know, they may have one experience or another, or they, their parent taught them something. And then they start to, it's very easy to label people. And, you know, that creates a problem because not everybody's the same. Everybody's an individual and you shouldn't judge someone when you come up on them based on their appearance. Um, you, you should judge them based on their character and what they're doing. And I think that's where a lot of this issue comes in is, you know, you've got police interacting with different people that they stop or they run into. And, you know, uh, clearly, um, there are some bad police out there that have done horrible things and they need to be rooted out of the system. It's not acceptable. It doesn't matter what race the person is that they're harming. Um, they shouldn't be doing that. And if they're doing that based on an implicit bias that they have, um, then that's a problem too. And you have to train them on that and train them not to react. But Again, I don't want this to come off like I'm defending the police, but they are out there where their life is in jeopardy a lot of times. And, you know, that clearly wasn't the case in the George Floyd issue or a lot of these other ones out there. But um, sometimes they are out there in a situation where they may be fired upon and they've got a, you know, when they come out and they've got their gun drawn, that's because if somebody else has their gun out, they may shoot them. Deshaun and I actually went down to a tactical defense academy uh, range that I used to go to in Hickory and had a chance to go through a multi-screen um, display where they train police and law officers to to engage with the uh, public. And w we do that with um, uh, the UNC police and state level police. They have that and you have uh, someone kind of coaching them so that they can get used to these interactions and used to how to react and how to handle things and how not to shoot the wrong person. Now, I will tell you not to uh, rat Deshaun out here, but they have this um, thing called a uh, a, uh, a sure, surefire or something like that. It's yep. not surefire. It's something like that. But anyway, it's a it's like a, uh, a taser that goes on your hip, mild taser, but still it feels like a bee sting. And if you get shot, you get stung. The minute we hook that up, 
Deshaun turned into the Terminator. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Killed it. I'm good. A little lady walking across. He was like, that's a terrorist. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. You know, it's interesting. Let me make a couple of uh, questions and I'm kicking it to Deshaun. And, and this is going to sound weird coming from a good looking black guy who's drinking water, not bourbon. But from this perspective, the thing that we have to deal with, Marty, we do, I'm going to talk about biases, prejudice, and stereotypes, but also I'm going to talk about fact. In Greensboro, North Carolina, the majority of homicides here are young African-American males, those who are being killed. Um, that's horrible. However, even more horrible than that is the trigger finger that's pulling the trigger on these guns or these weapons that's murdering them is a black finger also. Now, let's just say we had 50, 60, 70 murders, homicides in Greensboro last year. And 95% of them were African-American males. And 95% of the perpetrators were African-American males. Now, if one police officer or law enforcement, I think that's the way people would like you to describe it, kills one African-American males. We will tear the city up, tear it down right and everything else. I get that. What I don't get as a black man is that how about the other 99 Odell that are being killed by black men and as leaders, we don't speak out against that. That's one thing. That's one thing. And people are like, Odell, you shouldn't talk about that. You You airing our dirty laundry. And I'm sitting there saying, if I'm a white guy, I know who getting killed. I mean, we see it on the news every day, and I'm sitting there saying, you would tear up the city, Odell, if a police officer get in a confrontation with a black male, but you won't say a word if this other black men are killing black men. So, and I'm going back to Marty's thing, give me three things about Black Lives Matter. The fact that if Black Lives Matter, all black lives matter. So we have to talk about black on black crime. The second thing is this. I live in a very affluent neighborhood and I had the unfortunate situation years ago of my sons coming home from college and the sheriff department stopping them and making them prove that they live where they lived. And the fact that it almost went sideways and son, and I could have lost my son. My son was um, yep. probably a little younger than you. And I'm like, he would have got killed for nothing being in his own yard the sheriff department stopping him, questioning him, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And he lives there. So the sheriff assumed something was going on, stopped them, called in backup and everything else. And we found out about it, rushing from upstairs. And if he would have got killed, it had been over nothing. Nothing was going on. And the third thing is, so having a platform, I went to, you know, I'm part of this bougie stuff. So I went to a national NCCJ uh, annual meeting in Greensboro, thousands of people in dinner, and I had the privilege of doing the keynote speak, speech. So that's what I talked about. And I made so many people uncomfortable, people from the left, people from the right. And it's like black people, white people, bougie black folk, you know, and a lot of times it's black folks and white folks. When we think we have, we're woke, whatever that means, and we get along and then you put us in a heated, uncomfortable situation like that. And it's like, dog Odell, you know, we came here to have a dinner and a fundraiser and all that. And you made everybody uncomfortable. And I'm like, but we have to make people comfortably uncomfortable. So those are the things when Marty's of the world and others ask the question, not like we're on a witness stand, but he asked the question, Odell, okay, Black Lives Matter, give me three things. 
And it's almost like, well, you're a racist for asking me to give you three things. No, it's not. I just want to understand. I'm questioning you, not like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for better understanding. And I love this podcast, Mavericks, because we could talk about stuff like this in a civic, civil way where other people are like, great, I always want to ask that question. And your thoughts on that, Sean, on Marty's questions too, because, you know, your thoughts, sir. Yeah, I I think I'm going to try to succinctly because obviously brevity is not my gift. Odell knows I was born and raised in a a Baptist black church with Reverend Bishop George Brooks. My man, that's (laughs) my mentor. That's my mentor. We would need to do two hours because we had you. Yeah, let me. You you must be black Irish then. (laughs) (laughs) Let me. Let me let me try to address it real quick. So I think we're talking about two things. One, to before I even get to the three questions, I mean the three proposed solutions. One, I think, I think what's difficult for folks to grasp, especially as you think about Black Lives Matter as an example, is exactly the type of thing that Marty was talking about, right? I, I have, you know, myself, I have, you know, a neighbor, friends and family who are law enforcement officers as well. And what I know is it's not a matter of questioning the individual, right? It's not a matter of, are there great police officers out there? What are police officers' intent? Like, obviously, there's great police officers. Obviously, there's people who are, you know, I myself would not sign up to take that job. But it's beyond the question of whether or not we have good people in the world. It's really a question of what are the conditions through which, you know, an officer can, you know, use their power in the case of George Floyd to put their, you know, knee on them and not feel like, Hey, this is not a, this is not a bad thing. I can do this because I have power and control over this individual. Same case of, you know, Trayvon Martin's case, right. Thinking about what are the conditions through which, you know, we can know that, you know, perhaps it's not great to, you know, walk and stalk somebody and then shoot and kill them and you get away with it and be acquitted. Right. I'm not saying that, you know, obviously the, all these cases have different outcomes, but really the question is, what are the conditions that exist that allow those types of incidents to happen? Right. An officer stops your son, Odell, to say, you know, and I've been stopped myself. Right. To say, like, what are you doing here? Why do you you know, why are you driving through this neighborhood? It's, it's not questioning whether or not that police officer has malintent. It's really questioning, like, what gives this person that perspective that they think that they have that power over another human being. And I think that when you start to think about the conditions, you then really get to really a root understanding of, man, it's not that the people are bad. It's that our system that it exists may give way to uh, scenarios in which Black people or others, right, feel like they are not, um, you know, as humane or, you know, equitable, et cetera. So I think, again, like trying to, all the way down, I think it's, it's, it's bigger than whether or not they're good people and good officers. It's really a, like, what, what are the conditions that make that system perpetuate violence on others? Um, so I think that's one thing. I think in terms of, like, the whole black-on-black black crime thing, like, for me personally, I, I don't share this often, but my own brother was shot and killed in Greensboro. Oh, wow. No, man. He, he was killed by a black man. And I think about the conditions of his life, you know, I have to grapple through what that meant for me as a teenager, but I think about the conditions of my brother's life. Here we have a teenager who definitely was in and out of, you know, the juvenile justice or the criminal justice system for decisions, sure, he made. And when he got home, right, I'll just tell you real quick, 
he was legitimately trying to develop a better life for himself. He had two kids, was trying to make ends meet, you know, was flagging uh, cars in a temp service as an example. And like, honestly, he was making minimum wage. And in some cases, part-time work doesn't obviously equate to like what he really truly needed. So if, you, so if I think about him and not saying he had to make the decision, right? I absolutely do not believe you have to participate in violence or participate in drug activity or anything like that. But like when I think about the conditions that say, hey, you have a felony on your back, you will never be able to get, uh, you know, you, or let me say it this way. You, your opportunities will always be limited from that point forward, right? Because he had been out of prison. And by the way, you're not going to have enough to provide for your family because you have to work a, a minimum, you know, part-time, you know, minimum wage job. And so thinking about the conditions, I think, man, how is it even possible for me as a black man with a formal education, go on to school, go on to make, you know, and I don't say this to brag, but like over six figures under the age of 30. You hey, know. Can, hey, can I borrow $20 for you, man? Marty <laughs> owed me 20 and you owe me 20. You know. So that's 40 right there. And if I can get Bill to put in 10, that's $50. I'm good. I, I should not have quoted that. I'll take wait that minute, back. Wait but, but, now I know who's buying dinner. There you go. <laughs> you know, but to say like, man, like what, how is it possible for these two realities to exist? And I think it is the, the that I made a decision, right, that I do believe others can make, but it's not about them, like, making a bad decision or a right decision. It's just about, like, seeing what was available to you. In my case, because I did not have a criminal record, because I did not have a felony, I can make different decisions about my life and the way that I want to live it. Sure, he absolutely could have as well. But the conditions for him, to me, were different. And I think when people talk about, like, you know, what are the two to three things from a, like, Black Lives Matter movement, I'm like, man, his Black Lives Matter dying at the end of a bullet from a Black man as well. Right. And, yes, I'm just as pissed off about that as I am with an officer like the one in George Floyd's incident. And for me, the parallel is, man, how do I, within the spheres that I have influence or power or privilege or opportunities, how do I examine like where I should play in my lane to, in some cases, give up a little bit of my, you know, financial ability, you know, give up some of like connections that I have. Right. That's, that's the whole thing that even, you know, through Marty, I've been able to do, right. I have a connection to someone who's a business owner. We have not, I've never, you know, tapped to Marty say, yo, Marty, I got a business idea. Help me out. But it's just that mere idea of having access and exposure really to a different path, a different way. That's not the case in a lot of different people's situations. So when I hear, you know, one of the two to three things, it's like we're, we're dealing with not bad actors. We're dealing with a bad, uh, a bad, you know, structure in America by how we operate. And so I think there's three things that you can do in education to, to shore up that system. I think there's three things you can do from a business lens that shores up that system. You know, healthcare disadvantages and disparities. Like, there's a lot of different things to do, and so I, I think, you know, and I'll say this more poorly, and, and Marty knows I, I often say this type of stuff to him. But like, I think it's a cop out to say what's the two, three things. I think it's multiple things, and I think for all of us, it's like, yo, where do I have power? Where do I have influence? What can I do based on the influence, the rooms I sit in, etc.? What can I do to influence? maybe creating an opportunity for somebody else. 
maybe creating someone's mindset to shift on what does it mean to be a good black man, an articulate black man, you know, in my case, right? My brothers talk totally different than me. They're from North Carolina, Greensboro, didn't go to Morehouse and are still as valuable as I am. Would white people see me as more valuable than my brothers? Maybe, right? So that's that's where I go, right? In the conversation of like Black Lives Matter and how do we affect change, I think is looking at these things as a as a as a as a society, right? And I'm again, I want to underscore, I don't think it's that we can create a utopia. I think that does not exist. I just think we got to all look at, yo, where do I have influence and power, and what can I do from the seat that I sit in? And I think that is much more digestible because I then I then do think that we can develop two to three things you can do. So last thing I'll say, again, told y'all was from the Baptist Church, is for me, right? I'm thinking, yo, I'm at a tech company. I'm working in diversity, equity, and inclusion. By the way, it's one of the largest tech companies in the world. When I worked at Deloitte, I was thinking, man, I'm in a space where all these top 50 Fortune companies are thinking about DEI and trying to think about, you know, what does this mean for their people? What does it mean for their shareholders? What does it mean for their, you know, employees? I was helping shape the agenda with CEOs. And I'm not saying that to brag on myself, but like, wow, I was able to say, hey, here's, you know, company X, here's the three things that y'all can do to like really enact change at your company right now. And so I'll probably continue to see that like impact as I think about like, you know, my career, but like, that's what the mindset I'm saying we should like kind of think about those three questions. It's, it's not just three things. It's a lot of things, but you have to examine yourself. I think that, you know, when I, when I say three things and I, I do this on every real estate projects, things I want to get done, I always try and break it down to that because there may be a hundred things on my list, but if I can't yep. get three things move forward and off my list and kind of tackle something, then I'll never get to the other 97. So, and it also forces me to prioritize and say, okay, what do I really need to get done or what needs to get done first? So maybe the first thing is, um, a certain study or the second thing is something else out there. But I, I agree with you, Deshaun. I think this comes kind of full circle back to what we were talking about earlier with you succeed and the mentoring program that you developed, Yep. which is, you know, help yourself. You decided, you know, with your own resources to kind of help yourself within that system. And then I think what that does is that inspires someone else to help too. Kind of like when we were in Africa and you had, the uh, villagers there that were working with us, they're plowing beside us in the field. That's more motivational than if let's say we came out there and plowed the field for them because one, maybe we're not plowing it the way they want it or we're not doing the right thing. So kind of working shoulder to shoulder, but I think it helps when you see someone kind of helping themselves and then you're helping with them, then everybody feels better about it rather than like one or the other. Um, but yeah. I, I think that education, to your point, is a critical thing. And it's one of the challenges, you know, not to hit on, a, you know, while we're hitting, the reason we broke out the bourbon is because we were hitting on so many sensitive subjects here. But, um, <laughs> you know, the other part of it is both you and Odell mentioned that, you know, growing up in single parent households. And I can tell you, you know, in in my house where I'm kind of the breadwinner, my wife was able to help with Alex you know, two of us raising one son is challenging enough to make sure that we're providing him the attention that he needs, the tutoring that he needs, and we're both college educated helping him. How do we, 
how do we break that cycle? Because we've got, you know, an issue of just one person maybe helping or one person that hasn't gone to college, then try, you know, and, and even though I had gone all the way through MBA, sitting there trying to help with some of Alex's math, I'm like, God, did I forget all that? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't remember this. We're helping with AP computer science. Like, yeah, I used to know this, but now I, I don't. I've forgotten it after, you know, 30 something years. Um, but um, what are yeah, your thoughts Mario, I on? You saying, I kind of hear you saying, like, how do, like, and this is probably a question, Odell, too. Like, yo, Odell, how do we clean our house is what I'm hearing. Like, you know, we talk about generational influences that have led to things like, you know, from our situation, single parent households, right? I mean, that's a whole different podcast, a whole conversation, but we'll love your thoughts to, to Marty's question of like, Definitely. how do you do that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, my my mother was a divorced uh, single mother. And I always said, God, if you would bless me with sons, I will be the father that I never had. And God blessed me with one boy. And I remember, you know, so, so important you would ask this question. I remember rolling them over and I saw those two little peanuts, you know, on them. And I said, <laughs> okay, this is a boy. And I felt real good. And I'm just trying to pour everything in him. And then uh, we planned a second child, and I remember the second one was born. He had a big old hair full of head full of hair, and I thought he was a girl. We rolled him over, and I saw two more little peanuts. I'm like, oh, man, God, I have so much in me that I, it's just overflowing to another son. And even then, I uh, had my nephew on my wife's side of the family who family's going through divorce. We moved him in and lived with us also, and I have been mentoring males, black males, my whole life. I have been trying to show lead by example because my father wasn't there. I don't want to be chasing ghosts, but I thank God for a grandfather who showed me what it is to work, how it is to be a man, how it is. Was he perfect? No, but he was perfect for me. And I think that's how we clean our own houses or start. But at the same time, I had a white basketball coach, Coach Jerry Waters, who played just as much as a role in my life on discipline through sports than anything else. So I think that it's whosoever will let him come, white or black. However, I think that as men of color, we have to take the responsibility to say, hey, how can we make a difference? And I just think that the, the good thing that you said is let's talk about it. Let's bring it out in the open because it's not like people don't know that 68% of black households are female led. I mean, it, it, all this stuff, people talking about black people in dirty laundry. Listen, everybody know what's going on. Hey, guess what? White people have dirty laundry. Huh? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not just the black people. It just, you know, the, you know, like you said, the murders are black on black. Well, that's noticeable. But nobody, but all the, the white folks, I'll, I'll speak for white folks, some of them just go, well, that's just the way they live. Wait, wait, <clears throat> well, but it's interesting, Bill. And <clears throat> and the good thing about it, Sean, is like we haven't, now see, we're having a real good conversation now. Now the water's kicking in and the bourbon kicking in. It's just like, <laughs> that's just those people. That's just the way they live. Yep. And I love Bill and you love Marty, and the good thing about it is we can have these conversations on the platform of trust and love. Amen. So we have these conversations, the fact that people who we know, even if what they say sound crooked coming out of their mouth or curvy, we know what they mean and vice versa. If I say something that sounds crazy and Bill's like, 
boy, I don't like the way that sounds, but I know it's coming from Odell, so I know it's coming from a good place. And you're the same way with Marty. We can agree to disagree. So when my good white friend, Bill, who I love and trust and respect, and we have a great friendship just like you and Marty, when he said, well, that's just how them people live. So my black folk out there, bring it back, bring it back. It's okay. Said, Bill's is okay. He's back. It's okay. He it's okay. Some people say that. He right. Say, some, he well, said, well, well, exactly. So so, so to my black folk who are ready to 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 to, to Tar and feather bill. Bill's good. Bill's good people. Go ahead, Bill. I, I just had to let people. him know. There you go. <laughs> My mama didn't raise no fool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but no, you know, and you look at that and um, I guess the thing I, I would emphasize is, you know, it's, it's such an over, if you, and Marty brought it up, we have all have hundreds of things to do in our, our daily routine. And, uh, and same thing with this, this is a huge deal breaking down these barriers. It's not easy. So make it simple. Pick one person, one person that you can start a relationship with and have conversations. And it doesn't have to be a black. It, could, it doesn't have to be a Jewish person. It's just somebody that's different than you. That's not in the same circle that gives you a different set of lenses to look through and be patient when they say things that will set you off, just settle down and go have a bourbon or a beer or a glass of wine. And if you don't drink, go out and have dinner and break over bread and find that common ground that you can find with people. And it may have to be very simple. It may be just, Hey, we both like fried chicken. Now here's the thing. I like fried chicken. I think Kentucky fried's good. Odell thinks that is terrible. And uh, he says, I'm going to take and get some real fried chicken. So, but you have common ground. You like fried chicken. You may not have the same fried chicken, you like fried chicken. So that's, that's how I see this coming about and working on it. And, and I think Marty's podcast is a stepping stone to that. Ours is. And I think as more people do this and more people listen, um, you know, we started out and Marty's going to do the same thing. Very few listeners. And then all of a sudden it starts building. Then you go to the next level. It's called responsibility. They're expecting yeah. you to be there helping them with this journey and bringing on guys like yourself, Deshaun. So it's a, it becomes, it becomes fun. Then it becomes not work, but a responsibility. And that's a total different thing. You know, to touch on something Bill said about, you know, hearing other people and observing <laughs> racism. I I've observed that, um, you know, all my life as well. You know, and as a um, somebody with a different last name, Marty Cotus, uh, Greek name, you know, I got a very tiny bit of that out there where, you know, you're different. You're outside the norm. You're not uh, a waspy. And so maybe that's where some of my kind of understanding comes from on that. And there's still, I mean, there's biases against Greek people. I was in Charlotte with a guy, old restaurant guy, and I spilled some... Uh, um, something on my white shirt. And so I asked for club soda and I'm scrubbing to get it out. And he says, yeah, you people are very frugal. I'm wow. like talking wow. about Greek people. I was like, wow, wow that's Whoa. really nice. huh?" <laughs> you know, but I mean, you, you see that out there and, you know, I think, you know, I've tried to, it's difficult sometimes, but I think it's important to do this. I have confronted that when I've seen it out there. I was in um, outside of London and there was this guy that made a racist comment about uh, President Obama. Now, 
I'm not a fan of President Obama, but I'll be damned if somebody's going to say something racist about my president. Amen. Um, so, you know, I, I confront him about it. And I've had other examples like that where you have to step up. And it's not comfortable because I think a lot of times if it's not directed at you, you you can kind of duck and, it, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it's important for us all to kind of speak up because it in all communities to defend others and defend ways of thinking like that. Um, if you disagree with them and it, it, the problem is you, you take some heat. I mean, if you're sitting there having a conversation with, you said it was like cousins or something. Yeah. That, I mean, that can create a, a whole issue over that and, and you got to balance it because you can't, you know, you want to, you know, there's two ways to respond. You can respond and be like, you know, like I did with the guy in the UK where you're like, I'm never going to see this guy again. I'm going to, really tell him what I think about him and his ideas. And then other times it's someone, you know, and you want to correct their viewpoint and fix it so that they don't carry that forward. And that's always a, a challenge out there. How do you, uh, Odell or Deshaun, what do you think about how do you correct people when they have a, a, um, a bias like that towards another group and, um, and how do you deal with it when it comes up or does it come up when people are, I feel like it does some these yeah. days where people are maybe biased against someone because they're a white male. Well, I, I think um, sometimes in my tribe, in my circles, is the people like, Odell, I, I know I got to be careful what I say around you because you love white people. It's not that I love white people. I love people. And the fact that some of my best friends are white or I do business with white folks, but I do business with black people. I'm one who don't believe that ice is colder on the other side of town. I'm not afraid of white people. I'm not trying to be white because those are some things that we get confronted with in our community where you're trying to act act white or you're trying to talk white or you're trying to, man, listen, I'm trying to live. And if I find common ground with anybody, white, black, or indifference, that's the main thing. I am a um, licensed, ordained, black Baptist preacher uh, sitting in a very influential seat of power and influence at one of the largest African-American churches in the country, or I would say Greensboro. Uh, we're not a black church, because we, but we're 99.999999% African-Americans. <laughs> and people are like, well, Odell, how do you have, how are you friends with gay people or LGBTQ and I think it's some other letters, not trying to be funny, but I, I can't always keep up with them. I-A. And I-A. Yeah. And they're like, how can you get along with those people? They're not those people. They're my people. And people are like, well, wait a minute. How can you, don't you believe in Sodom and Gomorrah? Just crazy stuff. And I, I refuse, Marty, to buy into letting someone coward me into saying something negative about friends of mine who happen to be LGBTQIA. And I challenge people on it. And I just think that if you don't entertain the foolishness, if I don't entertain that Marty's a racist or Bill's a racist or this person that, people don't bring it to you because it makes them uncomfortable when they come and tell you something and you don't buy into it and you question them on that. That makes people uncomfortable. So it's like, okay, ooh, he's not one of us. You know, you're not one of us. Back to your point earlier that now all of a sudden you're not accepted by this tribe. You don't get invited to the um, 
Christmas dinners anymore, or now all of a sudden it's that silent campaign going on against you. Well, Odell think he's better than this because let me tell you something about being black and growing up in the projects. My experience, I have a lot of family members who have done well, but I also have a lot of family members and friends who haven't. And I have to be careful as I code switch and I have to be careful as I go back home and what I do, because I have some friends from high school who will get in my car right now. It's like, oh, man, Odell, it's good to see you, man. Can you let me borrow $20? But after police come, they will take whatever drugs that they may or may not have in their pockets and slip it under my seat and the police stop us. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the guy look at me like, hey, man, it's your car. And then I ask him later on, yo, <laughs> bro, why'd you do that? He said, man, you slipping. I already got two counts on me, you know? But it's like, here you are messed up my whole reputation. It's like, yo, bro, you done got soft. You forgot how the hood works. So I can't get too soft to get taken advantage of by anybody, white, black, hood, urban rule. But I can't be so hard that I don't allow anyone to come into my life, you know, because if that was the case, I wouldn't be on your show today. If that was the case, I wouldn't be with my good friend, Bill Goble today. And like Bill told me once, he said, Odell, 10 years ago, me and you couldn't do this show. 10 years ago, we couldn't talk about some of the tough Amen. issues we talk about now. Yeah. And to, I don't, and I'm interested to have LaShawn answer it, but yeah, man, you just have to be who you are. And people know that, yeah, I'm down with the cause, but at the same time, I ain't down for the foolishness. It was a process. Yeah. It was a process. It didn't happen overnight. And um, it's, it, and it's not easy. It's not easy. You know, we make it look easy. We do. It, it takes real trust, real trust. Um, and, you know, when Odell, I'll tell you a little story. Um, we were at uh, a big event in Greensboro, um, and uh, kind of the who's who's there, Marty shows up. It's at Roy Carroll's Christmas party. <clears throat> and part of the deal is that uh, we're sitting there, and Odell and Bev were sitting down having some food, and Dory and I sat at the table, and there's, to people wall to wall and Dory um, mentioned to Bev that uh, we got a 25th wedding anniversary coming up and that we're going to take a riverboat cruise from Paris to Normandy. And Bev says, we'd like to go. I'd like to go. We'd like to go with you. Well, Odell and I were on the other side of the table. We couldn't hear what the girls were talking about until later on. Uh, Dory mentioned me. He says, Hey, Bev and Odell want to come with us on the riverboat cruise. And, and I called Odell. I said, did you, hear, did you hear that? And he goes, look at, if mama wants to go, we're going. <laughs> and next thing he knows, you know, he, he's telling us, okay, how do, what do we book airlines? And well, they had, they had booked the, the, the riverboat's not a big boat. And uh, we had booked in advance. So we were on some deck that was above water. They got below water. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, slave ship. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. In addition to that, they were the only two black people on the boat. On the whole boat, y'all. On the whole boat. Were now, there this, other people underwater or just you? No, there's other people underwater. Okay. Uh, we Now, that's how Bill saw it. We didn't see it that way. That's we how I saw it. it. Yeah. I felt terrible. Right. And we were good with it. And we're like, listen, we're just happy to get on the cruise. Meaning that it was last minute. We wanted to go to Paris. We did that. Um, I have gotten to a point in my life where... 
I look at things and I try to analyze it to see if it's about bias, prejudice, and stereotypes. When I get stopped by customs, whether I'm going into Israel or when we went to Canada, and customs just go through everything. It's like, are they stopping me because I'm black? Or they stopping me because they're stopping me and I just got the random straw. Sometimes I feel like it's because I'm black. Sometimes I feel like the random straw. I try to get through those situations and move on and don't let those situations determine everything. But it's interesting that Bill talked about the crews because it's, it's three different levels. We were down and anybody knows, you know, the last seats, I mean, the last cabins to go are the bottom cabins. So we were down there. Bill and Dory was up above. And then we met a gay couple two young ladies, two doctors, and they were like the top areas. And I remember they invited us uh, for dinner one night in their cabin. It was me, my wife, Bill and his wife, and these two uh, married uh, white females. And we sit up there and we talked. And we just talked, just like we're talking now about all kinds of things. We had a great time. Now, 20 years ago, I couldn't have had that conversation with two white married females. I couldn't have had that conversation. And you're like, why, Odell? Because I had my own bias, prejudice, and stereotypes that I learned on grandma's porch. So I think as the Baptist preacher from the big church that I'm involving and I'm being more like Jesus if that's what we're following and 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 understanding that my seat is not, I'm not the judge, the jury, and the executioner. I'm trying to be more like Jesus. What would Jesus do? I think the Holy Scriptures teaches us that Jesus interacted with any and everyone. And I think that's the point. So I love the fact that my friend said, oh, my God, they're in there. But we being being prominent as an African-American, you go into areas where a lot of times you're the only one. You're the on, on the whole ship. I'm the only one. Are these rich white folks from all over the world on Viking International? We going up and down the Rhine River. We in Paris. We in this with that. And so I'm up there. Listen, I'm I'm up there with everybody. I'm like, listen, I'm not gonna be the one that if I walk in a room and a bunch of white people at the table laughing, uh, I'm not even to a point of thinking they're laughing at me or the jokes about me. Right. I ain't got time for right. that kind of foolishness. So that's kind of where I am. But again, everybody's not me. And they may be laughing about Odell, but I don't have time for that because I'm going up to the uh, smorgasbord and get me some caviar and some fancy ham that they don't sell in the projects or serving the projects. <laughs> I'm going over there. I'm doing what I'm doing. And sooner or later, and this is what usually happens, sooner or later, people are curious about me. They're like, what? Because what? what they want to say, how did your black behind get on this ship? How can you afford to get on the ship? They don't say it like that. Marty said, well, well where are you from? And then we start the conversation because I expect the conversation to happen. And I think that's an opportunity to share with people about who I am and what I am. Because in a lot of cases, a lot of folks never came in contact with black folk at such close. Because I still believe that it's hard to hate up close. And when I step away, Sean, and say, hey, yeah, let's have a conversation. And they're like, oh, my God, I never met anyone like you. Is that good, bad, or indifference? That's for someone else to determine. But what Odell say is, here's an opportunity to teach and lead other people and help tear down some bias, prejudice, and stereotypes and go from there. Because if all I see on the media is black people killing, robbing, whatever, then I'm thinking Odell's going to rob, kill too. So it's like, what are you doing? So, Sean, that's my experience, you know. But remember now, Sean, you owe me $20. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, y'all y'all said it all. I mean, I, 
I, I don't have anything else to add on, on that statement, honestly. Like, I feel like that covers it. But I would say to, to even the theme of the podcast, Marty, around like independent thinking and being a maverick, I think what I'm hearing as a theme for all of us and a lot of these like these stories that we've shared is an independent thinker has one curiosity. I think we've all talked about, you know, opening up the conversation, thinking about, you know, what what can I do, right? It's that curiosity that you have as an independent thinker. I think that helps shape your own perspective mm-hmm. further. And then the other thing is you kind of have to have like, you know, vision for what you're trying to accomplish, right? Even, you know, I said I jokingly said cop out to your three questions, but I, I will seriously say like, even within that lens, what I hear is, oh, as a strategy person, your mindset almost always re- uh, results to what are the like three takeaways to impact change like now? And I think as an independent thinker, like that's very, very important. Like I'm even thinking back to an experience that I've had over the last, you know, decade of our relationship from a vision perspective. I mean, I can't tell you how many times you and I have spent, you know, days, hours, you know, looking at something like red mud, red mud on the ground. And you telling me, man, this is going to be like, you know, a movie theater. It's going to have the seeds. It's going to have the food. You're going to be able to serve the popcorn. Like, you know, thinking about Red Cinema is one of your projects. And if you think back from my perspective, I'm looking at Red Mud and I'm like, Mari, it sounds good, but I'm looking at Red Mud. (laughs) (laughs) What are you saying? And what is like so beautiful about it is, you know, as a, as a independent thinker is you, you have that vision and that strategy. And so because I live in Atlanta, I'm making my point that almost every time in the last 10 years I come home, I'm hitting you up like, yo, where you at? What's up? You want to get a beer? You know, what are you you and Ashley and, you know, uh, Alex doing. And so because we have that relationship as well, right. I'm able to like more fully appreciate a vision. And so, as you know because i again because i'm only able to come home every so often i'll see like oh the foundation is in right i'll come back three months six months later oh wait there's like paint on the outside of the building you know give it a year's time couple months oh wait there's like a foundation the paint is in you know is on the building there's like seats in the chair you know seats in the theaters and now there's people and like people are enjoying it right even to your Daryl's project as an example, right? I, I, I don't tell this people often, but I was also like one of the first employees Marty had when he re-envisioned the concept for Daryl's back in 2011, was it Marty? 2011? 2010, yeah. And you were yep. in, um, a great kids concierge as well. Exactly. That was I was barely legal to have a job, y'all. So the man employed me, which I always appreciate a little bit more bread. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but my point is, as an independent thinker, right, that's now helped me shape when I'm having conversations with the CEOs or CHROs or chief legal officers about what's possible for their business. I use the lens of, man, let's not look at like just patterns and behaviors of what we know exists. How do we envision, right, a new future together? And I think that's part of, you know, the independent thinking mindset, even when we talked about you know, politics. I'm like, yo, where's my voice in this? Where is the voice of millennials? It's like trying to decipher how we shape it together through a, a vision and obviously based on values that I personally have. That's that's where I start to action. Sam, similar to Marty, right? As a business owner and investor, et cetera, that's what I see. 
from your perspective. So I know it's tangential, but I just wanted to say, like, that's one thing that I'm hearing us all say. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that people say all the time is you learn from experience. But as soon as yep. you say that, those words go from your tongue over your lips. The question is, how do you learn from experiences you've never had? Because in a lot of cases, I had to look at other individuals because I have never been involved in building a million dollar operation. I've never been involved in how uh, to be a great father and now a grandfather. So I love your point of find a mentor or find someone. And it doesn't matter about race, creed or color is like, that's it. Cause if not, you may mess it up and unattended consequences. All of us are still consequences. And let me say that again. Unintended consequences are still consequences and everybody's not a visionary. Everybody can't see it. And I love your examples. Like I'm looking at red clay and Marty talking about people eating popcorn, but some people are afraid of that though. Some people are afraid of visionaries. Some people are afraid to say, Hey, I grew up in public housing, Odell, but my mama told me three things. She said, you could be anything you want to be in life. And it was a lie. My mama told it. And you know, I'm from the project, so you can't call my mama lie. Cause that's a fight. She said, <laughs> you get the best education that you can never look down on people and you trust God. Now, it's like, how you mean the best education I can? Because you said, Sean, hey, you could get a good education at a bad school or a bad education at a good school. It's up to you. So I got the best education that this poor black boy could get. I try not to look down at nobody other than to help them up, and I'm trying to trust God. Am I the perfect Christian? No. I'll let Bill, Marty, and you take that role, but I'm just trying to make it in. So I love this conversation because we're talking about stuff, man, that people don't want to talk about. And so I thank Marty for hosting us as Mavericks to say, hey, let's have these conversations. And yes, it's going to make people uncomfortable, but sometimes we need to be uncomfortable. Bill, help your brother out. Help your black brother out, Bill. Help your black brother out. Let me give him a lead in here so to to wrap this up and kind of get us on the final leg and bill Adam, whatever you want as well. But what advice would you give others? Let's say someone's listening to this podcast and they say, Hey, I want to be a maverick. I want to be an independent thinker, but I'm afraid, or it comes with some uh, repercussions out there. What can you do to help encourage them or find a pathway to that independence and expressing themselves? That's a great question. The, uh, you know, the, um, as you were saying at the, I was trying to reflect on how Odell and I have been doing things and, you know, I'm, I'm one of finding the path of least resistance. And let me explain that. Um, as a scout, you're taught to go and hike. Well, you can hike up a rocky trail, you can hike up some cliffs, or you can say, you know, I'm going to go around that one and have, I'll get to the same place. It may take me a little longer, but I don't have to fight that right now. And so I, my advice is if for those folks that say, man, I'm afraid to step out. That's just not my comfort zone. It's just not in me. That's not my style. That's not my personality. You may be right right now, but 10 years ago, I couldn't have done this with Odell. It wasn't there. It took some time. It took some lens changing. So take small steps. And then, believe it or not, you end up being a maverick. Wow. That's great. That's my man. That's my man, Bill. That's my, LaShawn, 
That's my that's man. You hear my man that's, talking? Hey, Odell, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Odell, how about you? What, what's your advice for people wanting to become a maverick? I think that they need to do their research. Case in point, if you want to talk about race relations, if you want to talk about LGBTQIS? IA. IA, excuse me. First, respect other people's spaces and understand them. Don't judge them. And find someone who you think you could have small conversations with. But at the same time, know for sure that you're going to get criticized. Know that you're going to get attacked. Know that people are going to call you everything but a child of God. Know that people are going to not like you. So if you have the disease of wanting people to like you, I wouldn't advise them to do this. But if you have the disease of enlightenment, then this is for you. I would love they could contact you, Marty, on your show. And you're going to have to tell people how to get in contact with you on your show. And we would love to talk to them and help them. But at the end of the day, you have to be someone who's willing to fight the good fight and really don't you care because I, I care about what people say about me because I'm human like everyone else. However, I'm not going to let someone else's opinion of me paralyze me from moving forward, sir. Great. Deshaun, got some advice for uh, potential Mavericks out there? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, thinking through the context of my life and some of the stories I've shared, I think I could have easily became a person that's like, yo, I've got all the answers or man, too many answers to kind of think through where do I even start? And so, you know, my advice is two things. One, be very comfortable being wrong and, and challenge your assumptions and beliefs around that um, and get a community of people who tell you you're wrong, <laughs> number one, and two, uh, help you get a new perspective. So that's one thing. Um, and then I think the second thing is really, you know, this whole piece around curiosity and, and being hungry enough to learn more. I think without, you know, shutting out, you know, if you start with shutting out conversations, shutting out different perspectives, you know, shutting out, you know, even challenging your own assumptions, you really won't get to a place where you learn. And so I think, you know, last thing I'll say is just, you know, continue to be hungry enough to learn more. So again, recap, get comfortable, completely being wrong and hungry enough to learn more. That's great. Y'all, y'all have already covered almost everything I was going to say. So <laughs> yeah, but Mark, I'm, I'm going to have to add three new things because yeah. uh, you've already covered the stuff I was going to say, but the three new things I'd add are, um, you know, travel and, you know, and visit and, and get a world perspective on things like with Dustin's greenhouse, you know, go places that you're not used to spending time. Don't get in the same rut, get out of your routine and visit other places and meet new people and have new conversations and, and feel comfortable being bold. You know, I love the quote, fortune favors the bold. The, the other part of it I'd say is um, Matt Green, who worked with me, that was a, uh, a Marine sniper, um, always would say when you get rattled a bit, he would say, stay frosty. And that's the idea of keep your cool. And I think that's probably what I would give for my main piece of advice for people is stay frosty. When you're having that conversation that's difficult, don't let your blood pressure get jacked up. Don't get enraged. Don't take it personally. You know, have that reasoned, comfortable conversation 
and don't let it get under your skin. I mean, so then that will keep, if you keep your tone and your even keel, then somebody else hopefully will keep theirs if they're having a, it could be one person, it could be a whole group that you're talking to. And that, um, that's a, something you have to practice. It's not something that comes easily because there's an immediate react where you want to uh, engage. But I think over time you can find a way to, to stay a little bit more frosty. Marty, one question for you as a maverick, you started this podcast and thank you for inviting the three of us on as your inaugural guests. Why did you start this? You have more things to do than this. Why? What's your why behind this show, sir? So I think my why behind the show, uh, and I'm going to spend more time both on video and on audio, is a lot of times I'm talking through the media. And that's through a lens that someone else is taking. So the media has a perspective and I'm commenting and it's part of that, or I'm pitching a story maybe to the media, but someone else is telling my story and talking about things. And I don't really have a chance, you know, they're editing, they're cutting out certain things. And now I can just give someone an unfiltered raw version of what I think and what other smart, you know, intelligent reasoned people are thinking out there as well on a, whole variety of subjects. It could range from what we covered today to, you know, it could be something that's more uh, lighthearted. You know, we covered a lot of stuff today from lighthearted to serious as well. But um, I did it to, to have more of that glimpse. And also I think it's a great, so part of it is cutting out the media and having a chance to kind of talk directly to people out there and give them a glimpse into what's going on. But the other part of it is the art of conversation is is being lost. And this is a way to remind myself and give myself and others an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation without a TV on or, you know, because you can have a conversation at a bar, but maybe the TV's on or there's other things. And this is just purely focused on it. So it's like meditation, but for the mind where you're, where you're you're thinking about different concepts you're articulating them and you're you're conversing and it's just uh i find it very rewarding um right now i feel super chill and relaxed and i feel like i've learned a lot of new perspectives and um that's why i like talking with people that are like-minded in terms of their ability to have a reasoned discussion and not fall into these tribal or conformist boundaries, but instead break out of that and, and share ideals. Uh, because I think there's a lot of us like that out there, but I think there are a lot of people that are afraid to, uh, to find their inner maverick out there. Well so, said. So we're going to stay frosty, my brother. We're going to stay frosty. Uh, you know, you know, the other thing that it's, that's going to happen out of this and, um, and I, I took a while, a while to think about ours and, you know, hundred years from now, your great, great grandkids are going to say, what did my great grandfather sound like? What did he think about? Wouldn't you like to know that about your great grandfather? You know, it's funny. I was having that exact thought this morning driving in and it was reminding me of a street artist in the Netherlands digital does. And he took me to show me some of his old artwork and it was hidden. Really not everybody could see it. So it wasn't like a out there in public display, but he, he painted it where it was so that it could be kind of tucked away. And he said he did that so that his 
sons could later come back and explore and see that, and it would remind them um, of him. Mm. And I, I thought that was another side benefit to that as well, not to get emotional here, but you know, we're all wanting to leave our mark on this earth, and for our children or loved ones or uh, descendants to to uh, to hear you and hear kind of who you are and and not just see it through the lens of the media, but see it through your own conversation out there. Exactly. We had uh, Randy Reynolds who owned Reynolds Rap on, and his whole motivation was exactly that. I mean, he had stories because. He was friends with Putin. He was friends with all those guys because they had mines over there. And But his, his real motivation was, I wanted to tell stories that won't be filtered, that my great-great-grandkids say, what did Grandpa Randy sound like? That's great. Well, thank you all all so much. Thank you to Sean for participating uh, via thank phone. You. Odell and Bill, thank you for joining me in here. and. Our pleasure. It's uh, I had a sound effect queued up that I was going to do that was the, listen, listen, listen. I am the captain now. <laughs> that, come on, 102 down. <laughs> Why are you listening to 102 down? He's got his black card. <laughs> Whoa, that's deep in the black cut, Marty. 102 down. You're now rocking with the best. <laughs> Just splice it in. <laughs> but it's nice. To, uh, thank you all for inspiring me, too, to, to get into the podcast world and uh, being so generous to let me on your show a couple times. And for, for as we wrap up here, for people that uh, have not followed Bill and Adele's show, it is uh, the formal name of it is? The Common Ground Dot Show. That's the Common Ground Dot Show yep. is the website. Yep, and that will get you there and all the podcasts are on there and you can listen to Marty's too. And actually folks, I'm going to tell you, he's gotten better the second time. He's got, he's got that voice, but you know, Marty, the thing about it is that we talked about tough subjects, but we also put a little humor in there because we understand the levity of the toughness in our subjects and how it might weigh on someone. But the humor lets people know that you can have tough very poignant conversations, but also have a little bit of humor in there too. Because like any good medicine, sometimes you need a little sweetener for it to go down. And the thing about it is we didn't go with the Hannity and Combs argument. Yes, we agree to disagree and everyone stood their grounds, but we were civil and respectful of everyone. And I think that's where the country is going to have to go. Because if we're only just talking to people who agree with us, we're really just talking to ourselves. And now we're in the echo chamber. And when you talk to yourself and start answering yourselves, that's when we get a little off the rails, mm-hmm. my friends. We'll have to do another one of these again since I got I got to keep up. If y'all have uh, two with me, I got to have two with y'all. You and of course, I'm sitting here keeping you for like three hours on this <laughs> one. So maybe like five shows in one. But. Yeah, that's it. You know, we're happy to help. And Sean, it was great meeting you, sir. And I look forward to networking and meeting you, too. We go, we come to Atlanta quite often, flying in with our producer down there. So this is going to be a big yeah. deal. Yeah, and Deshaun, definitely when you get in town, give Odell and I a call. We'll join you guys for some food. And definitely food. will. Sounds great. Definitely will. Nice to meet you all. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Again, make sure to check out commonground.show with Bill and Odell on there. And uh, they have a very interesting podcast. 
Today's podcast, I had a chance to learn from Odell and Bill and Deshaun and really get to understand their various perspectives on some difficult issues. Race is not an easy topic to cover, and it's uh, very charged, and people can become kind of tribal in their various camps where you align with one group or another. I think in order for us to find more common ground, like Bill and Odell do on their podcast, we have to have conversations that are difficult, and we have to find that independent thinking or maverick personality to have those conversations because we're breaking from our tribal groups, our groups where we belong, where we feel comfortable as a Democrat or as a Republican, or identifying with one group or another. As part of that, we have to be willing to look inside. We have to be willing to look at things that we can change within our own groups or our own actions in order to find more common ground out there. I'm thankful to my friends Deshaun, Bill, and Odell that are willing to sit down and have these conversations in a non-threatening way with a sense of humor and with a sense of curiosity hoping to understand more about each other's perspectives. Something that would really help me with this podcast is any sort of feedback from you, the listeners, letting me know what you think. If you get a chance and can write a review on one of the podcast platforms, that's great. And tell me what we can improve, how we can make it better. 